Time Warner Audiobooks presents The Tipping Point, How Little Things Can Make a Big Difference. Written by Malcolm Gladwell and read by the author. For hush puppies, the classic American brush suede shoes with the lightweight crepe sole, the tipping point came somewhere between late 1994 and early 1995. The brand had been all but dead until that point. Sales were down to 30,000 pairs a year, mostly to backwoods outlets and small-town family stores. Wolverine, the company that makes hush puppies, was thinking of phasing out the shoes that made them famous. But then something strange happened. Two hush puppy executives, Owen Baxter and Jeffrey Lewis, ran into a stylist from New York at a fashion shoot who told them that the classic hush puppies had suddenly become hip in the clubs and bars of downtown Manhattan. We were being told, Baxter recalls, that there were resale shops in the village, in Soho, where the shoes were being sold. People were going to the Ma and Pa stores, the little stores that still carried them, and buying them up. Baxter and Lewis were baffled at first. It made no sense to them that shoes that were so obviously out of fashion could make a comeback. We were being told that Isaac Mizrahi was wearing the shoes for his personal use, Lewis says. At the time, we had no idea who Isaac Mizrahi was. By the fall of that year, things began to happen in a rush. First, the designer John Bartlett called. He wanted to use hush puppies in his spring collection. Then another Manhattan designer, Anna Sui, called, wanting shoes for her show as well. In Los Angeles, the designer Joel Fitzgerald put a 25-foot inflatable basset hound, the symbol of the hush puppies brand, on the roof of his Hollywood boutique and gutted an adjoining art gallery to turn it into a hush puppies department store. It was total word of mouth, Fitzgerald remembers. In 1995, the company sold 430,000 of the classic hush puppies. The next year it sold four times that, and the year after that still more, until hush puppies were once again a staple of the wardrobe of the young American male. Hush puppies had suddenly exploded, and it all started with a handful of kids in the East Village in Soho. Those first few kids, whoever they were, weren't deliberately trying to promote hush puppies. They were wearing them precisely because no one else would wear them. Then it spread to two fashion designers who used the shoes to peddle something else, haute couture fashion. The shoes were an incidental touch. And then, in the space of a year, boom, the shoes exploded. They went past a certain point, and they tipped. How did that happen? How does a $30 pair of shoes go from a handful of downtown Manhattan hipsters and designers to every mall in America in the space of two years? There was a time, not very long ago, in the desperately poor New York City neighborhoods of Brownsville and East New York, when the streets would turn into ghost towns at dusk. Ordinary working people wouldn't walk on the sidewalks. Children wouldn't ride their bicycles on the streets. The drug trade ran so rampant, and gang warfare was so ubiquitous in that part of Brooklyn that most people would take to the safety of their apartments. In 1992, there were 2,154 murders in New York City, and 626,182 serious crimes, with the weight of those crimes falling hardest in places like Brownsville and East New York. But then something strange happened. At some mysterious and critical point, the crime rate began to turn. It tipped. Within five years, murders had dropped 64.3% to 770, and total crimes had fallen by almost a half to 355,000. In Brownsville and East New York, the sidewalks filled up again, and the bicycles came back. The New York City police will tell you that what happened in New York was that the city's policing strategies dramatically improved. Criminologists point to the decline of the crack trade and the aging of the population. Economists, meanwhile, 
said that the gradual improvement in the city's economy over the course of the 1990s had the effect of employing those who might otherwise have become criminals. But the demographic changes are all long-term trends happening all over the country. They don't explain why crime plunged in New York City so much more than in other cities around the country. And they don't explain why it all happened in such an extraordinarily short time. How can a change in a handful of economic and social indices cause murder rates to fall by two-thirds in five years? The tipping point is the biography of an idea, and the idea is very simple. Ideas and products and messages and behaviors spread just like viruses do. The rise of hush puppies and the fall of New York's crime rate are textbook examples of epidemics in action. Although they may sound like they don't have very much in common, they share a basic underlying pattern. First of all, they are clear examples of contagious behavior. No one took an advertisement out and told people that the traditional hush puppies were cool and they could start wearing them again. Those kids simply wore the shoes when they went to clubs or cafes or simply walked the streets of downtown New York. And in so doing, they exposed other people to their fashion sense. They infected them with the hush puppy virus. The crime decline in New York surely happened the same way. It wasn't that some huge percentage of would-be murderers suddenly sat up in 1993 and decided not to commit any more crimes. Nor was it that the police managed to magically intervene in a huge percentage of situations that would otherwise have turned deadly. What happened is that the small number of people in the small number of situations in which the police or the new social forces had some impact clearly started behaving very differently. And that behavior somehow spread to other would-be criminals in similar situations. Somehow, an awful lot of people in New York got infected with an anti-crime virus in a short time. The second distinguishing characteristic of these two examples is that in both cases, little changes had big effects. All of the possible reasons for why New York's crime rate dropped are changes that happened at the margin. The crack trade leveled off. The population got a little older. The police force got a little better. Yet the effect was dramatic. So too with hush puppies. How many kids are we talking about who began wearing their shoes in Manhattan? 20? 50? 100 at the most? Yet their actions seem to have single-handedly started an international fashion trend. Finally, both changes happened in a hurry. They didn't build slowly and steadily. Crime didn't taper off. It didn't gently decelerate. Rather, it hit a certain point and jammed on the brakes. These three characteristics, contagiousness, the fact that little changes can have big effects, and the change happens not gradually, but at one dramatic moment, are the same three principles that define how measles move through a grade school classroom or how the flu attacks every winter. Of the three, the third epidemic trade, the idea that epidemics can rise or fall in one dramatic moment, is the most important, because it is the principle that makes sense of the first two and that permits the greatest insight into why modern change happens the way it does. The name given to that one dramatic moment in an epidemic, when everything can change all at once, is the tipping point. A world that follows the rules of epidemics is a very different place from the world we think we live in now. Think for a moment about the concept of contagiousness. If I say that word to you, you think of colds and the flu or perhaps something very dangerous like HIV or Ebola. We have in our minds a very specific biological notion of what contagiousness means. But if there can be epidemics of crime or epidemics of fashion, there must be all kinds of things just as contagious as viruses. Have you ever thought about yawning, for instance? Yawning is a surprisingly powerful act. Just by listening to the word yawn in the previous sentences, a good number of you will probably yawn within the next few minutes. 
If you're listening to this in a public place and you've just yawned, chances are that a good proportion of everyone who saw you yawn is now yawning too. And a good proportion of the people watching the people who watched you yawn are now yawning as well, and on and on in an ever-widening yawning circle. Yawning is incredibly contagious. I made some of you listening to this yawn simply by saying the word yawn. The people who yawned when they saw you yawn, meanwhile, were infected by the sight of you yawning, which is a second kind of contagion. They might even have yawned if they'd only heard you yawn, because yawning is also orally contagious. If you play an audio tape of a yawn to blind people, they'll yawn too. And finally, if you yawned as you heard this, did the thought cross your mind, however unconsciously or fleetingly, that you might be tired? I suspect that for some of you it did, which means that yawns can also be emotionally contagious. Simply by saying the word, I can plant a feeling in your mind. Can the flu virus do that? Contagiousness, in other words, is an unexpected property of all kinds of things, and we have to remember that if we are to recognize and diagnose epidemic change. The second of the principles of epidemics, that little changes can somehow have big effects, is also a fairly radical notion. We are, as humans, heavily socialized to make a kind of rough approximation between cause and effect. If we want to communicate a strong emotion, if we want to convince someone that, say, we love them, we recognize that we need to speak passionately and forthrightly. If we want to break bad news to someone, we lower our voices and choose our words carefully. We are trained to think that what goes into any transaction or relationship or system must be directly related in intensity and dimension to what comes out. Consider, for example, the following puzzle. I give you a large piece of paper, one one-hundredth of an inch thick. That's a typical thickness. I want you to fold it over once and then take the folded paper and fold it over again, and then again and again until you've refolded the original paper 50 times. How tall do you think the final stack is going to be? If you ask people that question, they'll fold the sheets in their mind's eye and usually answer that the pile would be as thick as a phone book. Or, if they're really courageous, they'll say that it would be as tall as a refrigerator. But the real answer is that the height of the stack would approximate the distance to the sun. And if you folded it over one more time, the stack would be as high as the distance to the sun and back. This is an example of what in mathematics is called a geometric progression. Epidemics are another example of geometric progression. When a virus spreads through a population, it doubles and doubles again until it has figuratively grown from a single sheet of paper all the way to the sun in 50 steps. As human beings, we have a hard time with this kind of progression because the end result seems far out of proportion with the cause. To appreciate the power of tipping points, we have to abandon this expectation about proportionality. We need to prepare ourselves for the possibility that sometimes big changes happen very quickly. Then there is the idea of the tipping point itself, which might be the hardest of all to accept. The phrase the tipping point first came into popular use in the 1950s and 1960s, to describe the flight to the suburbs of whites living in the older cities of the American Northeast. When the number of incoming African Americans in a particular neighborhood reached a certain point, 5% or 7% or 10%, sociologists observed that the community would tip, meaning that almost all the remaining whites would leave almost immediately. There was a tipping point for violent crime in New York City in the early 1990s and a tipping point for the reemergence of hush puppies. All epidemics have a tipping point, Jonathan Crane, a sociologist at the University of Illinois, has looked at the effect the number of role models in a community, the professionals, managers, teachers, whom the Census Bureau has defined as high status, has on the lives of teenagers in the same neighborhood. 
He found little difference in pregnancy rates or school dropout rates in neighborhoods of between 5 and 40 percent of high-status workers. But when the number of professionals dropped below 5 percent, the problems exploded. For black schoolchildren, for example, as the percentage of high-status workers falls just 2.2 percentage points, from 5.6 percent to 3.4 percent, dropout rates more than double. At the same tipping point, the rates of childbearing for teenage girls which barely move up to that point, nearly double. We assume intuitively that neighborhoods and social problems decline in some steady progression, but sometimes they may not decline steadily at all. At the tipping point, schools can lose control of their students and family life can disintegrate all at once. I remember once as a child when I saw my family's puppy encounter snow for the first time. He was shocked and delighted and overwhelmed, wagging his tail nervously, sniffing about in this strange, fluffy substance, whimpering with the mystery of it all. It wasn't that much colder on the morning of his first snowfall as it had been on the evening before. It might have been 34 degrees the previous night, and now it was 31 degrees. Almost nothing had changed, yet everything had changed. Rain had become something entirely different, snow. The world of the tipping point is a place where the unexpected must be expected, where radical change is more than a possibility. It is a certainty. In the mid-1990s, the city of Baltimore was attacked by an epidemic of syphilis. In the space of a year, from 1995 to 1996, the number of children born with the disease increased by 500%. If you look at Baltimore's syphilis rates on a graph, the line runs straight for years, and then, when it hits 1995, rises almost at a right angle. What caused Baltimore's syphilis problem to tip? According to the Centers for Disease Control, the problem was crack cocaine. Crack is known to cause a dramatic increase in the kind of risky sexual behavior that leads to the spread of things like HIV and syphilis. It brings far more people into poor areas to buy drugs, which then increases the likelihood of them taking an infection home with them to their own neighborhood. It changes the patterns of social connections between neighborhoods. Crack, the CDC said, was the little push that the syphilis problem needed to turn into a raging epidemic. John Zellerman a sexually transmitted disease expert at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, has another explanation, the breakdown of medical services in the city's poorest neighborhoods. In 1990-91, we had 36,000 patient visits at the city's clinics, Zeneman says. Then the city decided to gradually cut back because of budgetary problems. The number of clinicians went from 17 to 10. The number of physicians went from 3 to essentially nobody. Patient visits dropped to 21,000. There was also a similar drop in the amount of field outreach staff. When there were 36,000 patient visits a year in the STD clinics of Baltimore's inner city, in other words, the disease was kept in an equilibrium. At some point between 36,000 and 21,000 patient visits a year, the disease erupted. Suddenly, people who may have been infectious for a week before getting treated we're now going around infecting others for two or three or four weeks before they got cured. The breakdown in treatment made syphilis a much bigger issue than it had been before. There is a third theory which belongs to John Potterat, one of the country's leading epidemiologists. His culprits are the physical changes in those years affecting East and West Baltimore, the heavily depressed neighborhoods on either side of Baltimore's downtown, where the syphilis problem was centered. In the mid-1990s, he points out, 
the city of Baltimore embarked on a highly publicized policy of dynamiting the old 1960-style public housing high-rises in East and West Baltimore. Two of the most publicized demolitions, Lexington Terrace in West Baltimore and Lafayette Courts in East Baltimore, were huge projects housing hundreds of families that served as centers for crime and infectious disease. At the same time, people began to move out of the old row houses in East and West Baltimore as those began to deteriorate as well. It was absolutely striking, Potterat says, of the first time he toured East and West Baltimore. Fifty percent of the row houses were boarded up, and there was also a process where they destroyed the projects. What happened was a kind of hollowing out. This fueled the diaspora. Whereas syphilis for years had been confined to a specific socio-geographic region of Baltimore within highly confined socio-sexual networks, the housing dislocation process served to move those people to other parts of the city. They took their syphilis and other behaviors with them. What is interesting about these explanations is that none of them are at all dramatic. The CDC thought that crack was the problem, but it wasn't as if crack came to Baltimore for the first time in 1995. It had been there for years. What they were saying is that there had been a subtle increase in the severity of the crack problem in the mid-1990s, and that that change had been enough to set off the syphilis epidemic. Zellman, likewise, wasn't saying that STD clinics in Baltimore were shut down. They were simply scaled back, the number of clinicians cut from 17 to 10. And nor was Potterat saying that all of Baltimore was hollowed out. All it took, he said, was the demolition of a handful of housing projects and the abandonment of homes in key downtown neighborhoods to send syphilis over the top. It takes only the smallest of changes to shatter an epidemic's equilibrium. The second, and perhaps more interesting, fact about these explanations is that all of them are describing a very different way of tipping an epidemic. The CDC is talking about the overall context for the disease, how the introduction and growth of an addictive drug can so change the environment of a city that it can cause the disease to tip. Zellman is talking about the disease itself. When the clinics were cut back, syphilis was given a second life. It had been an acute infection. It was now a chronic infection. It had become a lingering problem that stayed around for weeks. Potterat was focused on the people who were carrying syphilis. Syphilis, he was saying, was a disease carried by a certain kind of person in Baltimore, a very poor, probably drug-using, sexually active individual. If that kind of person was suddenly transported from their old neighborhood to a new one, the disease would have an opportunity to tip. There is more than one way to tip an epidemic, in other words. Epidemics are a function of the people who transmit infectious agents, the infectious agent itself, and the environment in which the infectious agent is operating. And when an epidemic tips, when it is jolted out of equilibrium, it tips because something has happened, some change has occurred in one or two or three of those areas. These three agents of change I call the law of the few, the stickiness factor, and the power of context. The law of the few. When we say that a handful of East Village kids started the hush puppy epidemic, or that the scattering of the residents of a few housing projects was sufficient to start Baltimore's syphilis epidemic, what we are really saying is that in a given process or system, some people matter more than others. When it comes to epidemics, a tiny percentage of people do a huge amount of the work. Potterat, for example, once did an analysis of a gonorrhea epidemic in Colorado Springs. He looked at everyone who came to a public health clinic for treatment of gonorrhea over the space of six months. 
he found that about half of the cases came, essentially, from four neighborhoods representing about 6% of the geographic area of the city. Half of that 6% figure, in turn, were socializing in the same six bars. Potteret then interviewed 768 people in that tiny subgroup and found that 600 of them either didn't give gonorrhea to anyone else or gave it to only one other person. Those people he called non-transmitters. The ones causing the epidemic to grow, the ones who were infecting two and three and four and five others with their diseases, were the remaining 168. In other words, in all of the city of Colorado Springs, a town of well in excess of 100,000 people, the epidemic of gonorrhea tipped because of the activities of about 168 people living in four small neighborhoods and frequenting the same six bars. Who were these 168 people? They are people who go out every night, people who have vastly more sexual partners than the norm, people whose lives and behavior are well outside of the ordinary. In the book And the Band Played On, Randy Schiltz discusses at length the so-called patient zero of AIDS, the French-Canadian flight attendant Gaetien Dugas, who claimed to have 2,500 sexual partners all over North America and who was linked to at least 40 of the earliest cases of AIDS in California and New York. This is the kind of person who makes epidemics of disease tip. Social epidemics work in exactly the same way. They are also driven by the efforts of a handful of exceptional people. In this case, it's not sexual appetites that set them apart. It's things like how sociable they are, or how energetic or knowledgeable or influential among their peers. The stickiness factor. We tend to spend a lot of time thinking about how to make messages more contagious, how to reach as many people as possible with our products or ideas. But the hard part of communication is often figuring out how to make sure a message makes an impact once it reaches its target. The hard part is making sure that what we have to say doesn't go in one ear and out the other. Stickiness means that a message makes an impact. It sticks in your memory. When Winston filtered tip cigarettes were introduced in the spring of 1954, the company came up with the slogan, Winston tastes good like a cigarette should. That's a classically sticky advertising line. At the time, the ungrammatical and somehow provocative use of like instead of as created a minor sensation. It was the kind of phrase that people talked about, like the famous Wendy's tagline from 1984, Where's the Beef? In his History of the Cigarette Industry, Richard Kluger writes that the marketers at R.J. Reynolds, which sells Winston, were delighted with the attention and made the offending slogan the lyric of a bouncy little jingle in television and radio, and rarely defended their syntax as a colloquialism rather than bad grammar. Within months of his introduction, on the strength of that catchy phrase, Winston tipped, racing past Parliament, Kent, and L&M, into second place behind Viceroy in the American cigarette market. Within a few years, it was a best-selling brand in the country. To this day, if you say to most Americans, Winston tastes good, they can finish the phrase, like a cigarette should. Stickiness is a critical component in tipping. Unless you remember what I tell you, why would you ever change your behavior or buy my product or go and see my movie? The stickiness factor says there are specific ways of making a contagious message memorable. There are relatively simple changes in the presentation and structuring of information that can make a big difference in how sticky it is. The power of context. Every time someone in Baltimore comes to a public clinic for treatment of syphilis or gonorrhea, John Zellman plugs his or her address into his computer so that the case shows up as a little black star on a map of the city. On Zellman's map, 
The neighborhoods of East and West Baltimore, on either side of the downtown core, tend to be thick with black stars. From those two spots, the cases radiate outwards along the two central roadways that happen to cut through both neighborhoods. In the summer, when the incidence of sexually transmitted disease is highest, the clusters of black stars in the roads leading out of East and West Baltimore become thick with cases. The disease is on the move. But in the winter months, the map changes. When the weather turns cold, and the people of East and West Baltimore are much more likely to stay at home and not go to the bars and clubs and street corners where sexual transactions are made, the stars of each neighborhood fade away. The seasonal effect on the number of cases is so strong that it's not hard to imagine that a long, cold winter in Baltimore could be enough to substantially slow or lessen, at least for the season, the growth of the syphilis epidemic. Epidemics, Zellman's map demonstrates, are strongly influenced by the situation, by the circumstances and conditions and particulars of the environments in which they operate. This much is obvious. What is interesting, though, is how far this principle can be extended. It isn't just prosaic factors like the weather that influence behavior. Even the smallest and subtlest and most unexpected factors can affect the way we act. One of the most infamous incidents in New York City history, for example, was the 1964 stabbing death of a young Queenswoman by the name of Kitty Genovese. Genovese was chased by her assailant and attacked three times on the street over the course of half an hour as 38 of her neighbors watched from their windows. During that time, however, none of the 38 witnesses called the police. The case provoked rounds of self-recrimination. It became symbolic of the cold and dehumanizing effects of urban life. The truth about Genovese, however, turns out to be a little more complicated and more interesting. Two New York City psychologists, Bib Latane and John Darley, subsequently conducted a series of studies to try and understand what they dubbed the bystander problem. They staged emergencies of one kind or another in different situations in order to see who would come and help. What they found, surprisingly, was that the one factor above all else that predicted helping behavior was how many witnesses there were to the event. In one experiment, for example, Latane and Darley had a student alone in a room stage an epileptic fit. When there was just one person next door listening, that person rushed to the student's aid 85% of the time. But when subjects thought there were four others also overhearing the seizure, they came to the student's aid only 31% of the time. When people are in a group, in other words, responsibility for acting is diffused. They assume that someone else will make the call, or they assume that because no one else is acting, the apparent problem, the seizure-like sounds in the other room, isn't really a problem. In the case of Kitty Genovese, the lesson is not that no one called despite the fact that 38 heard her scream, it's that no one called because 38 people heard her scream. Ironically, had she been attacked in a lonely street with just one witness, she might have lived. The implications of this insight for understanding epidemics are considerable. Social epidemics tip when a large group of people are suddenly convinced to change in some way, to accept a new idea, buy a product, see a new movie. If behavior is influenced only by macro-environmental factors, by the alienation of urban life, for example, tipping an epidemic sounds like a tall order. The only way to make people care would be to move them into the country. But the Genovese case suggests that to get people to behave very differently, to get them to care about their neighbor in distress, for example, all we have to do is tinker with the smallest details of their immediate situation. 
We just need to make sure that they're the only ones in the room. The power of context says that human behavior is a lot more suggestible than it seems. These three rules of the tipping point, the law of the few, the stickiness factor, the power of context, offer a way of making sense of epidemics. They provide us with direction about how to go about reaching a tipping point. In the case of epidemics like hush puppies or syphilis in Baltimore, all of these factors probably played an important role. But that isn't always the case. There are times when by looking clearly at an epidemic through the prism of these three principles, we can learn how to separate those interventions that are worthwhile from those that are a waste of time and energy. The balance of this program will take these ideas and apply them to other puzzling situations and epidemics from the world around us. On the afternoon of April 18, 1775, a young boy who worked at a livery stable in Boston overheard one British Army officer say to another, there'll be hell to pay tomorrow. The stable boy ran with the news to Boston's North End, to the home of a silversmith named Paul Revere. Revere listened gravely to the boy. That was not the first rumor to come his way that day. Earlier, he had been told of an unusual number of British officers gathered on Boston's Long Wharf, talking in low tones. British crewmen were spotted scurrying around the boats tethered beneath the HMS Somerset and the HMS Boyne in Boston Harbor. Several other sailors were seen on shore that morning, running what appeared to be last-minute errands. As the afternoon wore on, Revere and his close friend Joseph Warren became more and more convinced that the British were about to make the major move that had long been rumored, to march to the town of Lexington, northwest of Boston, to arrest the colonial leaders John Hancock and Samuel Adams, and then on to the town of Concord to seize the stores of guns and ammunition that some of the local colonial militia had stored there. What happened next has become part of historical legend. At ten o'clock that night, Warren and Revere met. They decided they had to warn the communities surrounding Boston that the British were on their way so that local militia could be roused to meet them. Revere was spirited across Boston Harbor to the ferry landing at Charleston. He jumped on a horse and began his midnight ride to Lexington. In two hours, he covered 13 miles. In every town he passed through along the way, he knocked on doors and spread the word, telling local colonial leaders of the oncoming British and telling them to spread the word to others. Church bells started ringing. Drums started beating. The news spread like a virus as those informed by Paul Revere sent out riders of their own until alarms were going off throughout the entire region. The word was in Andover, 40 miles due north of Boston by 5 a.m., and by 9 in the morning had reached as far away as Ashby, well to the northwest. When the British finally began their march towards Lexington on the morning of the 19th, their foray into the countryside was met, to their utter astonishment, with organized and fierce resistance. In Concord that day, the British were confronted and soundly beaten by the colonial militia, and from that exchange came the war known as the American Revolution. Paul Revere's Midnight Ride is perhaps the most famous historical example of a word-of-mouth epidemic. A piece of extraordinary news traveled a long distance in a very short time, mobilizing an entire region to arms. Not all word-of-mouth epidemics are this sensational, of course, but it's safe to say that word-of-mouth is, even in this age of mass communications and multi-million dollar advertising campaigns, still the most important form of human communication. Think for a moment about the last expensive restaurant you ate at, the last expensive piece of clothing you bought, or the last movie you saw. 
In how many of those cases was your decision about where to spend your money heavily influenced by the recommendation of a friend? Word of mouth, however, remains very mysterious. People pass on all kinds of information to each other all the time, but it's only in the rare instance that such an exchange ignites a word-of-mouth epidemic. There is a small restaurant in my neighborhood that I love and that I've been telling my friends about for six months, but it's still half empty. My endorsement clearly isn't enough to start a word-of-mouth epidemic. Yet there are restaurants that, to my mind, aren't any better than the one in my neighborhood, that open and within a matter of weeks are turning customers away. Why do some ideas and trends and messages tip and others don't? In the case of Paul Revere's ride, the answer to this seems easy. Revere was carrying a sensational piece of news. The British are coming. But if you look closely at the events of that evening, that explanation doesn't solve the riddle either. At the same time that Revere began his ride north and west of Boston, a fellow revolutionary, a tanner by the name of William Dawes, set out on the same urgent errand, working his way to Lexington via the town south of Boston. He was carrying the identical message through just as many towns over just as many miles as Paul Revere. But Dawes's ride didn't set the countryside afire. The local militia leaders weren't alerted. If it were only the news itself that mattered in a word-of-mouth epidemic, Dawes would now be as famous as Paul Revere. He isn't. So why did Revere succeed where Dawes failed? The answer is that the success of any kind of social epidemic is heavily dependent on the involvement of people with a particular and rare set of social gifts. Revere's news tipped, and Dawes didn't, because of the differences between the two men. This is the law of the few. In this section, I'd like to talk about the people critical to social epidemics, about what makes someone like Paul Revere different from someone like William Dawes. These kinds of people are all around us, yet we often fail to give them proper credit for the role they play in our lives. I call them connectors, mavens, and salesmen. In the late 1960s, the psychologist Stanley Milgram conducted an experiment to find an answer to what has become known as the small world problem. The problem is this. How are human beings connected? Do we all belong to separate worlds, operating simultaneously but autonomously, so that the links between any two people anywhere in the world are few and distant? Or are we all bound up together in some grand interlocking web? In a way, Milgram was asking, how does an idea or trend or piece of news, the British are coming, travel through a population? Milgram's idea was to test this question with a chain letter. He got the names of 160 people who lived in Omaha, Nebraska, and mailed each of them a packet. In the packet was the name and address of a stockbroker who worked in Boston and lived in Sharon, Massachusetts. Each person was instructed to write his name on the packet, and send it on to a friend or acquaintance that he thought would get the packet closer to the stockbroker. If you lived in Omaha and had a cousin outside of Boston, for example, you might send it to him on the grounds that, even if he did not himself know the stockbroker, your cousin would be a lot more likely to be able to get to the stockbroker in two or three or four steps. The idea was that when the packet finally arrived at the stockbroker's house, Milgram could look at the list of all those whose hands it went through to get there and establish how closely connected someone chosen at random from one part of the country was to another person in another part of the country. Milgram found that most of the letters reached the stockbroker in five or six steps. This experiment is where we get the concept of six degrees of separation. In the six degrees of separation, not all degrees are equal. When Milgram analyzed his experiment, 
he found that many of the chains from Omaha to Sharon followed the same asymmetrical pattern. Twenty-four letters reached the stockbroker at his home, in Sharon, and of those, sixteen were given to him by the same person, a clothing merchant Milgram calls Mr. Jacobs. The balance of letters came to the stockbroker at his office, and of those, the majority came through two other men, who Milgram calls Mr. Brown and Mr. Jones. In all, half of the responses that came back to the stockbroker were delivered to him by these same three people. Think of it. Dozens of people, chosen at random from a large Midwestern city, send out letters independently. Some go through college acquaintances. Some send the letters to relatives. Some send them to old workmates. Everyone has a different strategy. Yet in the end, when all of those separate and idiosyncratic chains were completed, half of those letters ended up in the hands of Jacobs, Jones, and Brown. Six degrees of separation doesn't mean that everyone is linked to everyone else in just six steps. It means that a very small number of people are linked to everyone else in a few steps, and the rest of us are linked to the world through those special few. There is an easy way to explore this idea. Suppose that you made a list of the 40 people whom you would call your circle of friends, not including family and co-workers, and in each case, work backward until you could identify the person who is ultimately responsible for setting in motion the series of connections that led to that friendship. My oldest friend Bruce, for example, I met in first grade, so I'm the responsible party. That's easy. I met my friend Nigel because he lived down the hall in college from my friend Tom, who I met because in freshman year he invited me to play touch football. Tom is responsible for Nigel. Once you've made all of the connections, the strange thing is that you'll find the same names coming up again and again. I have a friend named Amy, who I met when her friend Katie brought her to a restaurant one night where I was having dinner. I know Katie because she's best friends with my friend Larissa, who I know because I was told to look her up by a mutual friend of both of ours, Mike A., whom I know because he went to school with another friend of mine, Mike H., who used to work at a political weekly with my friend Jacob. No Jacob, no Amy. In fact, when I go down my list of 40 friends, 30 of them, in one way or another, lead back to Jacob. My social circle is, in reality, not a circle. It's a pyramid. And at the top of the pyramid is a single person, Jacob, who is responsible for an overwhelming majority of the relationships that comprise my life. Not only is my social circle not a circle then, but it's not mine either. It belongs to Jacob. It's more like a club than he invited me to join. These people who link us up with the world, who bridge Omaha and Sharon, who introduce us to our social circle, these people on whom we rely more heavily than we realize are connectors, people with a special gift for bringing the world together. What makes someone a connector? The first and most obvious criterion is that connectors know lots of people. They are the kinds of people who know everyone. All of us know someone like this, but I don't think we spend a lot of time thinking about the importance of these kinds of people. I'm not even sure that most of us really believe that the kind of person who knows everyone really knows everyone, but they do. Connectors are important for more than simply the number of people they know. Their importance is also a function of the kinds of people they know. Perhaps the best way to understand this point is through the popular parlor game Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. The idea behind the game is to try to link any actor or actress through the movies they've been in to the actor Kevin Bacon in less than six steps. So, for example, O.J. Simpson was in Naked Gun with Priscilla Presley, who was in Ford Fairlane with Gilbert Gottfried, who was in Beverly Hills Cop 2 with Paul Reiser, who was in Diner with Kevin Bacon. That's four steps. 
Bacon, although a fairly young actor, has already been in so many movies with so many different people that there is almost no one to whom he cannot be easily connected. Recently, a computer scientist at the University of Virginia by the name of Brett Taden actually sat down and figured out what the average Bacon number is for the quarter million or so actors and actresses who have played in television films or major motion pictures and came up with 2.8312 steps. Anyone who has ever acted, in other words, can be linked to Bacon in an average of under three steps. That sounds impressive, except that Taden then went back and performed an even more heroic calculation, figuring out what the average degree of connectedness was for everyone who had ever acted in Hollywood. For example, how many steps on average does it take to link everyone in Hollywood to Robert De Niro, or Shirley Temple, or Adam Sandler, and so on? What Taden found was that when he listed all Hollywood actors in order of their connectedness, Bacon only ranked 669th. Martin Sheen, by contrast, can be connected on average to every actor in 2.63681 steps, which puts him almost 650 places higher than Bacon. The best connected actor of all time? Rod Steiger. There are lots of people, however, who have made lots of movies and aren't particularly well-connected. John Wayne made 179 movies in his 60-year career and still ranks only 116th. What really sets someone like Steiger apart is his range. More than half of John Wayne's movies were westerns, meaning that he made the same kind of movie with the same kind of actors over and over again. But someone like Steiger, he's made great movies like the Oscar-winning On the Waterfront and dreadful movies like Carpool. He won an Oscar for his role in The Heat of the Night and also made B-movies so bad they went straight to video. He's been in 38 dramas, 12 crime pictures and comedies, 11 thrillers, 8 action films, 7 westerns, 6 war movies, 4 documentaries, 3 horror flicks, 2 sci-fi films and a musical, among others. Rod Steiger is one of those actors who has acted with everyone because he's managed to move up and down and back and forth among all the different worlds and subcultures and niches and levels that the acting profession has to offer. This is what connectors are like. They are the Rod Steigers of everyday life. They are people who all of us can reach in only a few steps because, for one reason or another, they manage to occupy many different worlds and subcultures and niches. In the case of connectors, their ability to span many different worlds is a function of something intrinsic to their personality, some combination of curiosity, self-confidence, sociability, and energy. And they also have this thing, whatever it is, that brings people together. There is a very good example of the way connectors function in the work of the sociologist Mark Granovetter. In his classic 1974 study, Getting a Job, Granovetter looked at several hundred professional and technical workers from the Boston suburb of Newton, interviewing them in some detail on their employment history. He found that 56% of those he talked to found their job through a personal connection. 18.8% used formal means advertisements, headhunters. Another roughly 20% applied directly. This much is not surprising. The best way to get in the door is through a personal connection. But, curiously, Granovetter found that of these personal connections, the majority were weak ties. Of those who used a contact to find a job, only 16% saw that contact often, as they would if the contact were a good friend. 55.6% saw their contact only occasionally, And 28% saw the contact rarely. People weren't getting their jobs through their friends. They were getting them through their acquaintances. Why is this? 
Granovetter argues that it is because when it comes to finding out about new jobs, or for that matter, new information or new ideas, weak ties are always more important than strong ties. Your friends, after all, occupy the same world that you do. They might work with you or live near you and go to the same churches, schools, and parties. How much then would they know that you wouldn't know? Your acquaintances, on the other hand, by definition occupy a very different world than you. They're much more likely to know something that you don't. To capture this apparent paradox, Granovetter coined the marvelous phrase, the strength of weak ties. Acquaintances, in short, represent a source of social power, and the more acquaintances you have, the more powerful you are. We rely on connectors to give us access to opportunities and worlds to which we don't belong. This principle holds for more than just jobs. It holds for restaurants, movies, fashion trends, or anything else that moves by word of mouth. The closer an idea or a product comes to a connector, the more power and opportunity it has. Could this be one of the reasons hush puppies suddenly became a major fashion trend? Along the way from the East Village to Middle America, a connector or a series of connectors must have suddenly become enamored of them. And through their enormous social connections, their long lists of weak ties, their role in multiple worlds and subcultures, they must have been able to take that idea and send it to a thousand directions at once to make it really tip. Hush puppies, in a sense, got lucky. And perhaps one of the reasons why so many fashion trends don't make it into mainstream America is that simply by sheer bad fortune, they never happen to meet the approval of a connector along the way. Here, then, is the explanation for why Paul Revere's Midnight Ride started a word-of-mouth epidemic, and William Dawes's did not. Paul Revere was a connector. He was gregarious and intensely social. When he died, his funeral was attended, in the words of one contemporary newspaper account, by troops of people. He was a member of several select social clubs. It is not surprising, then, that when the British Army began its secret campaign in 1774 to root out and destroy the stores of arms and ammunition held by the fledgling revolutionary movement, that Revere became a kind of unofficial clearinghouse for the anti-British forces. He knew everybody. It would be a mistake, however, to think that connectors are the only people who matter in a social epidemic. At some point in the rise of hush puppies, the shoes were discovered by connectors, who broadcast the idea of hush puppies as cool far and wide. But who told the connectors about hush puppies? It's possible that connectors learn about new information by an entirely random process, that because they know so many people, they get access to new things wherever they pop up. If you look closely at social epidemics, however, it becomes clear that just as there are people we rely on to connect us to other people, there are also people we rely on to connect us with new information. There are, in other words, information specialists and people specialists. Sometimes, of course, these two specialties are one and the same. Part of the particular power of Paul Revere was that he wasn't just a networker. He wasn't just the man with the biggest Rolodex in colonial Boston. He was also actively engaged in gathering information about the British. In the fall of 1774, he set up a secret group that met regularly at the Green Dragon Tavern, whose express purpose was to monitor British troop movements. He helped find out the intelligence, and he passed it on. Paul Revere was a connector, but he was also, and this is the second of the three kinds of people who control word-of-mouth epidemics, a maven. The word maven means one who accumulates knowledge. Perhaps the most complete understanding of what it means to be a maven comes from economists, 
who have taken the term in recent years and applied it to a certain kind of marketplace behavior. For example, when a grocery store wants to sell a given product, they put it on sale. They put an arrow next to it on the aisle and lower the price. But occasionally they make a mistake and forget to lower the price. What people who study supermarkets have found, though, is that in that case the product still sells as much as if its price really had been lowered. This is, when you think about it, a potentially disturbing piece of information. The whole premise behind sales, or supermarket specials, is that we as consumers are very aware of the prices of things and will react accordingly. We buy more in response to lower prices and less in response to higher prices. But if all we're reacting to is the label on sale and not the price, then what's to stop supermarkets from never lowering their prices? What's to stop them from cheating us with phony on-special signs every time we walk in? The answer is that although most of us don't look at prices, every retailer knows that a very small number of people do. And if they find something amiss, price that's too high, they'll do something about it. If a store tried to pull the sales stunt too often, these are the people who would figure it out and complain to management or the Better Business Bureau and tell their friends and acquaintances to avoid the store. These are the people who keep the marketplace honest. In the 10 years or so since this group was first identified, economists have gone to great lengths to understand them. They have found them in every walk of life and in every socioeconomic group. One name for them is price vigilantes. The other, more common name for them, is market mavens. A maven is a person who has information on a lot of different products or prices or places. They like to be helpers in the marketplace. They take you shopping. They go shopping for you. They distribute about four times as many coupons as other people. They're more than experts. An expert will talk about cars because they love cars. But they don't talk about cars because they love you and want to help you with your decision. The market maven will. They are more socially motivated. Mavens know things that the rest of us don't. They read more magazines than the rest of us, more newspapers, and they may be the only people who really read junk mail. Mavens have the knowledge and the social skills to start word-of-mouth epidemics. What sets mavens apart, though, is not so much what they know, but how they pass it along. Mavens want to help, for no other reason than because they like to help, and that turns out to be an awfully effective way of getting someone's attention. This is also surely part of the explanation for why Paul Revere's message was so powerful on the night of his midnight ride. News of the British march did not come by fax or by means of a group email. It wasn't broadcast on the nightly news, surrounded by commercials. It was carried by a man, a volunteer, riding on a cold night with no personal agenda other than a concern for the liberty of his peers. With hush puppies as well, perhaps the shoes caught the attention of connectors precisely because they weren't part of any self-conscious commercial fashion trend. Maybe a fashion maven went to the East Village looking for new ideas and found out that you could get these really cool old hush puppies at a certain thrift store for a very good price and told his friends, who bought the shoes for themselves because there was something about the personal, disinterested, expert opinion of a maven that makes us all sit up and listen. The one thing that a maven is not is a persuader. He's not the kind of person who wants to twist your arm. Mavens are really information brokers, sharing and trading what they know. For a social epidemic to start, though, a good number of people are actually going to have to be persuaded to do something. A good number of the young people who bought hush puppies were people who once upon a time wouldn't have been caught dead in them. In a social epidemic, mavens are databanks. They provide the message. Connectors are social glue. They spread it. 
But there is also a select group of people, salesmen, with the skills to persuade us when we are unconvinced of what we're hearing. And they are as critical to the tipping of word-of-mouth epidemics as the other two groups. Who are these salesmen, and what makes them so good at what they do? The question of what makes someone or something persuasive is a lot less straightforward than it seems. We know it when we see it, but just what it is is not always obvious. What happens when two people talk? That's really the basic question here, because that's the basic context in which all persuasion takes place. We know that people talk back and forth. They listen. They interrupt. They move their hands. The pioneer of the study of this process, what's called cultural micro-rhythms, is a man named William Condon. In one of his most famous research projects in the 1960s, he attempted to decode a a four-and-a-half-second segment of film in which a woman says to a man and child over dinner, You should come around here every night. We never had a dinner time like this in months. Condon broke the film into individual frames, each representing about one-forty-fifth of a second. Then he watched and watched. He spent a year and a half on that short segment of film, until, finally, in his peripheral vision, he saw what he had always sensed was there. The wife was turning her head exactly as the husband's hands came up. From there, he picked up other micro-movements, other patterns that occurred over and over again, until he recognized that in addition to talking and listening, the three people around the table were also engaging in what he called interactional synchrony. Their conversation had a rhythmic physical dimension. Each person would, within the space of one or two or three forty-fifths of a second, move a shoulder or cheek or an eyebrow or a hand, sustain that movement, stop it, change direction and start again. And what's more, those movements were perfectly in time to each person's own words, emphasizing and underlining and elaborating on the process of articulation so that the speaker was, in effect, dancing to his or her own speech. At the same time, the other people around the table were dancing along as well, moving their faces and shoulders and hands and bodies to the same rhythm. It's not that everyone was moving the same way, any more than people dancing to a song all dance the same way. It's that the timing of stops and starts of each person's micro-movements, the jumps and shifts of body and face, were perfectly in harmony. Subsequent research has revealed that it isn't just gesture that's harmonized, but also conversational rhythm. When two people talk, their volume and pitch fall into balance. What linguists call speech rate, the number of speech sounds per second, equalizes. So does what is known as latency, the period of time that lapses between the moment one speaker stops talking and the moment the other speaker begins two people may arrive at a conversation with very different conversational patterns, but almost instantly they reach a common ground. Like all specialized human traits, some people have much more mastery over this reflex than others. Part of what it means to have a powerful or persuasive personality, then, is that you can draw others into your own rhythms and dictate the terms of the interaction. Skilled musicians know this, and good speakers, says Joseph Capella, who teaches at the Annenberg School of Communications at the University of Pennsylvania. They know when the crowds are with them, literally in synchrony with them, in movements and nods and stillness and moments of attention. The essence of the salesman is that, when it comes to conversation, their rhythms cannot be resisted. In the late 1960s, a television producer named Joan Gans Cooney set out to start an epidemic. 
Her target was three, four, and five-year-olds. Her agent of infection was television, and the virus she wanted to spread was literacy. The show would last an hour and run every day of the week, but the hope was that if that hour was contagious enough, it could serve as an educational tipping point, giving children from disadvantaged homes a leg up once they began elementary school, spreading pro-learning values from watchers to non-watchers, infecting children and their parents, and lingering long enough to have impact well after the children stopped watching the show. Cooney probably wouldn't have used these concepts or described her goals in precisely this way. But what she wanted to do, in essence, was create a learning epidemic to counter the prevailing epidemics of poverty and illiteracy. She called her idea Sesame Street. By any measure, this was an audacious idea. Television is a great way to reach lots of people, very easily and cheaply. But it isn't a particularly educational medium. Jerry Lesser, a Harvard University psychologist who joined Cooney in founding Sesame Street, says that when he was first asked to join the project back in the late 1960s, he was skeptical. I had always been very much into fitting how you teach to what you know about the child, he says. You try to find the kid's strengths so you can play to them. You try to understand the kid's weaknesses so you can avoid them. Then you try to teach that individual kid's profile. Television has no potential, no power to do that, he said. Good teaching is interactive. It engages the child individually. But a television is just a talking box. In experiments, children who are asked to read a passage and then tested on it will invariably score higher than children asked to watch a video of the same subject matter. The word that educational experts use to describe television is low involvement. Cooney and Lesser enlisted some of the top creative minds of the period, They borrowed techniques from television commercials to teach children about numbers. They used the live animation of Saturday morning cartoons to teach lessons about learning the alphabet. They brought in celebrities to sing and dance and star in comedy sketches that taught children about the virtues of cooperation or about their own emotions. Sesame Street aimed higher and tried harder than any other children's show had, and the extraordinary thing was that it worked. Virtually every time the show's educational value has been tested, it has been proven to improve the reading and learning skills of its viewers. There are few educators and child psychologists who don't believe the show managed to spread its infectious message well beyond the homes of those who watched it. The creators of Sesame Street accomplished something extraordinary, and the story of how they did that is a marvelous illustration of the second of the rules of the tipping point, the stickiness factor. They discovered that by making small but critical adjustments in how they presented ideas to preschoolers, they could overcome television's weakness as a teaching tool and make what they had to say memorable. Sesame Street succeeded because it learned how to make television sticky. As I previously discussed, the law of the few says that one critical factor in epidemics is the nature of the messenger. A pair of shoes or a warning or an infection or a new movie can become highly contagious and tip simply by being associated with a particular kind of person. But in all those examples, I took it as a given that the message itself was something that could be passed on. 
Paul Revere started a word-of-mouth epidemic with the phrase, the British are coming. If he had instead gone on that midnight ride to tell people he was having a sale on the pewter mugs at his silversmith's shop, even he, with all his enormous personal gifts, could not have galvanized the Massachusetts countryside. In epidemics, the messenger matters. Messengers are what make something spread. But the content of the message matters, too. And the specific quality that a message needs to be successful is the quality of stickiness. Is the message or the food or the movie or the product memorable? Is it so memorable, in fact, that it can create change, that it can spur someone to action? Stickiness sounds like it should be straightforward. When most of us want to make sure what we say is remembered, we speak with emphasis. We talk loudly and we repeat what we have to say over and over again. Marketers feel the same way. There's a maxim in the advertising business that an advertisement has to be seen at least six times before anyone will remember it. That's a useful message for Coca-Cola or Nike, who have hundreds of millions of dollars to spend on marketing and can afford to saturate all forms of media with their message. But it's not all that useful for, say, a group of people trying to spark a literacy epidemic with a small budget and one hour of programming on public television. Are there smaller, subtler, easier ways to make something stick? The answer is that there are, although they lie in areas where we may not expect them to be. If you look closely at epidemic ideas or messages, as often as not, the elements that make them sticky turn out to be small and seemingly trivial. Consider, for example, the so-called fear experiment conducted by the social psychologist Howard Leventhal in the 1960s. Leventhal wanted to see if he could convince a group of college seniors at Yale University to get a tetanus shot. He divided them up into several groups and gave all of them a seven-page booklet explaining the dangers of tetanus, the importance of inoculation, and the fact that the university was offering free tetanus shots at the campus health center to all interested students. The booklets, however, came in several versions. Some of the students were given a high-fear version, which described tetanus in dramatic terms and included color photographs of a child having a tetanus seizure and other tetanus victims with urinary catheters, tracheotomy wounds, and nasal tubes. In the low-fear version, the language describing the risks of tetanus was toned down and the photographs were omitted. Leventhal wanted to see what impact the different booklets had on the students' attitudes towards tetanus and their likelihood of getting a shot. The results were, in part, quite predictable. When they were given a questionnaire later, all of the students appeared to be well-educated about the dangers of tetanus. But those who were given the high-fear booklet were more convinced of the dangers of tetanus, more convinced of the importance of shots, and were more likely to say that they intended to get inoculated. All of those differences evaporated, however, when Leventhal looked at how many of the students actually went and got a shot. One month after the experiments, almost none of the subjects a mere 3%, had actually gone to the health clinic to get inoculated. For some reason, the students had forgotten everything they had learned about tetanus, and the lessons they had been told weren't translating into action. The experiment didn't stick. Why not? If we didn't know about the stickiness factor, we probably would have concluded that something was wrong with the way the booklet explained tetanus to the students. We might have wondered whether trying to scare them was the appropriate direction to take, or whether there is a social stigma that surrounds tetanus that inhibits students from admitting that they are at risk, or perhaps that medical care itself is intimidating to students. In any case, 
that only 3% of students responded would suggest that we were a long way from reaching our goal. But the stickiness factor suggests something quite different. It suggests the problem probably isn't with the overall conception of the message at all, and that maybe all the campaign needs is a new approach. Sure enough, when Leventhal redid the experiment, one small change was sufficient to tip the vaccination rate up to 28%. It was simply including a map of the campus, with the University Health Building circled, and the times that shots were available clearly listed, along with a booklet. There are two interesting implications to this study. The first is that of the 28% who got inoculated, an equal number were from the high-fear as low-fear group. Whatever extra persuasive muscle was found in the high-fear booklet was clearly irrelevant. The students knew, without seeing gory pictures, what the dangers of tetanus were and what they ought to be doing. The second interesting thing is that, of course, as seniors, they must have already known where the health center was, and doubtless had visited it several times already. It is doubtful that any of them would ever actually have used the map. In other words, what the tetanus intervention needed in order to tip was not an avalanche of new or additional information. What it needed was a subtle but significant change in presentation. The students needed to know how to fit the tetanus stuff into their lives. The addition of the map and the times when the shots were available shifted the booklet from an abstract lesson in medical risk, a lesson no different from the countless other academic lessons they had received over their academic career, to a practical and personal piece of medical advice. And once the advice became practical and personal, it became memorable. There are enormous implications in Leventhal's fear experiments for the question of how to start and tip social epidemics. We have become, in our society, overwhelmed by people clamoring for our attention. In just the past decade, the time devoted to advertisements in a typical hour of network television has grown from six minutes to nine minutes. The New York-based firm Media Dynamics estimates that the average American is now exposed to 254 different commercial messages in a day. There are now millions of websites on the Internet. Cable systems routinely carry over 50 channels of programming, and a glance inside the magazine section of any Barnes & Noble will tell you that there are thousands of magazines coming out each week and month, chock full of advertising and information. In the advertising business, this surfeit of information is called the clutter problem, and clutter has made it harder and harder to get any one message to stick. Much of what we are told or read or watch, we simply don't remember the information age has created a stickiness problem. But Leventhal's example suggests that there may be simple ways to enhance stickiness and systematically engineer stickiness into a message. This is a fact of obvious importance to marketers, teachers, and managers. Perhaps no one has done more to illustrate the potential of this kind of stickiness engineering, however, than children's educational television, in particular the creators of Sesame Street. Sesame Street was built around a single breakthrough insight that if you can hold the attention of children, you can educate them. This may seem obvious, but it isn't. Many critics of television to this day argue that what's dangerous about TV is that it is addictive, that children and even adults watch it like zombies. According to this view, it's the formal features of television, violence, bright lights, loud and funny noises, quick editing cuts, zooming in and out, exaggerated action, and all the other things we associate with commercial TV 
that hold our attention. In other words, we don't have to understand what we're looking at or absorb what we're seeing in order to keep watching. That's what many people mean when they say television is passive. We watch it when we're stimulated by all the whizzes and bangs of the medium, and we look away or turn the channel when we're bored. What the pioneering television researchers of the 1960s and 1970s, in particular Daniel Anderson at the University of Massachusetts, began to realize, however, is that this isn't how preschoolers watch TV at all. The idea was that kids would sit, stare at the screen, and zone out, said Elizabeth Lorch, a psychologist at Amherst College. But once we began to look carefully at what children were doing, we found out that short looks were actually more common. There was much more variation. Children didn't just sit and stare. They would divide their attention between a couple of different activities. And they weren't being random. They were predictable influences on what made them look back at the screen. And these were not trivial things, not just flash and dash. Lorch, for instance, once re-edited an episode of Sesame Street so that certain key scenes of some of the sketches were out of order. If kids were only interested in flash and dash, that shouldn't have made a difference. The show, after all, still had songs and muppets and bright colors and action and all the things that make Sesame Street so wonderful. But it did make a difference. The kids stopped watching. If they couldn't make sense of what they were looking at, they weren't going to look at it. In another experiment, Lorch and Anderson showed two groups of five-year-olds an episode of Sesame Street. The kids in the second group, however, were put in a room with lots of very attractive toys on the floor. As you would expect, the kids in the room without the toys watched the show about 87% of the time, while the kids with the toys watched only about 47% of the show. Kids are distracted by toys. But when they tested the two groups to see how much of the show the children remembered and understood the scores were exactly the same. This result stunned the two researchers. Kids, they realized, were an awful lot more sophisticated in the way they watched than had been imagined. They wrote, We were led to the conclusion that the five-year-olds in the toys group were attending quite strategically, distributing their attention between toy play and viewing so that they looked at what for them were the most informative parts of the program. This strategy was so effective that the children could gain no more from increased attention. If you take these two studies together, the toy study and the editing study, you reach quite a radical conclusion about children and television. Kids don't watch when they're stimulated and look away when they're bored. They watch when they understand and look away when they are confused. If you're in the business of educational television, this is a critical difference. It means that if you want to know whether and what kids are learning from a TV show, all you have to do is notice what they're watching. And if you want to know what kids aren't learning, all you have to do is notice what they aren't watching. Preschoolers are so sophisticated in their viewing behavior, in other words, that you can determine the stickiness of children's programming by simple observation. The head of research for Sesame Street in the early years was Ed Palmer, a Ph.D. from Oregon whose specialty was the use of television as a teaching tool. When the Children's Television Workshop was founded in the late 1960s, Palmer was a natural recruit. I was the only academic they could find doing research on children's TV, he says. Palmer's innovation was something he called the distractor. It was simply a sly projector and screen that he would set up next to a television monitor. On the monitor, he would play an episode of Sesame Street. On the screen adjacent to the monitor, he would run a slideshow, with one new slide every 7.5 seconds. 
We had the most varied set of slides we could imagine, Palmer says. We would have a boy riding down the street on his bike with his arms out, a picture of a tall building, a leaf floating through ripples of water, a rainbow, a picture taken through a microscope, an Escher drawing, anything to be novel. That was the idea. Preschoolers would then be brought into the room, two at a time, and told to watch the television show. Palmer and his assistants would sit slightly to the side with a pencil and paper, quietly noting when they were watching Sesame Street and when they lost interest and looked instead at the slideshow. Every time the slide changed, Palmer and his assistants would make a new notation, so that by the end of the show they had an almost second-by-second account of what parts of the episode being tested managed to hold the viewer's attention and what parts did not. The distractor was a stickiness machine. We'd take that big-sized chart paper, two by three feet, and tape several of those sheets together, Palmer remembers. We had data points, remember, for every 7.5 seconds, which comes to close to 400 data points for a single program. And we'd connect all those dots with a red line so it would look like a stock market report from Wall Street. It might plummet or gradually decline, and we'd say, whoa, what's going on here? At other times, it might hug the very top of the chart, and we'd say, wow, that segment's really grabbing the attention of the kids. We tabulated those distractor scores in percentages. We'd have it up to 100% sometimes. The average attention for most shows is around 85 to 90%. If the producers got that, they were happy. If they got around 50, they'd go back to the drawing board. The distractors showed that no single segment of the Sesame Street format should go beyond four minutes, and that three minutes was probably optimal. Palmer forced the producers to simplify dialogue and abandon certain techniques that they had taken from adult television. The most important thing that Palmer ever found out with the distractor came at the very beginning, before Sesame Street was even on the air. It was the summer of 1969, and we were a month and a half from air date, Gerald Lesser, a psychologist at Harvard University who was one of the show's founders, remembers. We decided, let's go for broke. Let's produce five full shows, one hour each, before we go to air and see what we've got. To test the shows, Palmer took them down to Philadelphia, and over the third week of July showed them to groups of preschoolers in 60 different homes. It was a difficult period. Philadelphia was in the midst of a heat wave, which made the children who were supposed to watch the show restless and inattentive. In the same week as well, Apollo 11 landed on the moon, and some children understandably seemed to prefer that historic moment to Sesame Street. Worse for the conclusions was Palmer's distractor. What we found, Lesser says, almost destroyed us. The problem was that when the show was originally conceived, the decision was made that all fantasy elements be separated from the real elements. This was done at the insistence of many child psychologists, who felt that to mix fantasy and reality would be misleading to children. The Muppets, then, were only seen with other Muppets, and the scenes filmed on Sesame Street itself involved only real adults and children. What Palmer found out in Philadelphia, though, was that as soon as they switched to the street scenes, the kids lost all interest. The street was supposed to be the glue, Lesser said. We would always come back to the street. It pulled the show together but it was just adults doing things and talking about stuff, and the kids weren't interested. We were getting incredibly low attention levels. The kids were leaving the show. Levels would pop back up if the Muppets came back, but we couldn't afford to keep losing them like that. Lesser calls Palmer's results a turning point in the history of Sesame Street. We knew that if we kept the street that way, 
the show was going to die. Everything was happening so fast. We hit the testing in the summer, and we were going on the air in the fall. We had to figure out what to do. So the producers went back and reshot all of the street scenes. Jim Hansen and his co-workers created puppets who could walk and talk with the adults of the show and could live alongside them on the street. That's when Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch and Snuffleupagus were born. What we now think of as the essence of Sesame Street, the artful blend of fluffy monsters and earnest adults, grew out of a desperate desire to be sticky. The distractor, however, for all its strengths, is a fairly crude instrument. It tells you that a child understands what is happening on the screen, and as a result is paying attention. But it doesn't tell you what the child understands, or, more precisely, it doesn't tell you whether the child is paying attention to what he or she ought to be paying attention to. To try to understand this question, the research staff at Sesame Street developed another innovative testing program. Consider the following two Sesame Street segments, both of which are called visual blending exercises, segments that teach children that reading consists of blending together distinct sounds. In one, hug, a female Muppet approaches the word hug in the center of the screen. She stands behind the H, sounding it out carefully, then moves to the U, and then the G. She does it again, moving from left to right, pronouncing each letter separately, before putting the sounds together to say, hug. As she does, the Muppet Harry Monster enters and repeats the word as well. The segment ends with the Harry Monster hugging the delighted little girl Muppet. In another segment called Oscar's Blending, Oscar the Grouch and the Muppet Crummy play a game called Breakable Words, in which words are assembled and then taken apart. Oscar starts by calling for C, which pops up in the lower left corner of the screen. C, Oscar tells Crummy, is pronounced ka. Then the letters at pop up in the lower right-hand corner, and Crummy sounds the letters out, at. The two go back and forth, Oscar saying ka and Crummy at, each time faster and faster, until the sounds blend together to make cat. As this happens, the letters at the bottom of the screen move together as well to make cat. The two Muppets repeat cat a few times, and then the word drops from sight, accompanied by a crashing sound. Then the process begins again with the word bat. Both of these segments are entertaining. They hold children's attention. On the distractor, they score brilliantly. But do they actually teach the fundamentals of reading? That's a much harder question. To answer it, the producers of Sesame Street called in a group of researchers at Harvard University, led by a psychologist named Barbara Flagg, who are experts in something called eye movement photography. Eye movement research is based on the idea that the human eye is capable of focusing on only a very small area at one time, what's called our perceptual span. When most of us read, we focus on chunks of text, usually one keyword and then four characters to the left and 15 characters to the right. That lingering focus is called a fixation. The reason you can only focus clearly on that much text is that most of the sensors in your eye, the receptors that process what you see, are clustered in a small region in the very middle of the retina called the fovea. That's why you move your eyes when you read. You can't pick up much information about the shape or the color or the structure of words unless you focus your fovea directly on them. If you can track where someone's fovea is moving, you can tell with extraordinary precision what they are actually looking at and what kind of information they are actually receiving. The people who make television commercials, not surprisingly, are obsessed with eye tracking. 
If you make a beer commercial with a beautiful model, it would be really important to know whether the average 22-year-old male in your target audience focuses his phobia only on the model or eventually moves to your can of beer. Sesame Street went to Harvard in 1975 for the same reason. When kids watched Oscar's Blending or Hug, were they watching and learning about the words, or were they simply watching the Muppets? The experiment was conducted with 21 four- and five-year-olds who were brought to the Harvard School of Education over the course of a week by their parents. One by one, they were seated in an antique barber's chair with a padded headrest about three feet away from a 17-inch color television monitor. A Gulf and Western infrared eye-view monitor was set up just off to the left, carefully calibrated to track the fovea movements of each subject. What they found was that Hug was a resounding success. 76% of all fixations were on the letters. Better still, 83% of all preschoolers fixated on the letters in a left-to-right sequence, mimicking, in other words, the actual reading process. Oscar's blending, on the other hand, was a disaster. Only 35% of total fixations fell on the print. And exactly 0% of the preschoolers read the letters from left to right. What was the problem? First, the letters shouldn't have been on the bottom of the screen because, as almost all eye movement research demonstrates, when it comes to television, people tend to fixate on the center of the screen. That issue, though, is really secondary to the simple fact that the kids weren't watching the letters because they were watching Oscar. They were watching the model and not the beer can. I remember Oscar's blending, Flagg says. Oscar was very active. He was really making a fuss in the background. And the word is not close to him at all. He's moving his mouth a lot, moving his hands. There's a great deal of distraction. The kids don't focus on the letters at all because Oscar is so interesting. Oscar was sticky. The lesson wasn't. There is something profoundly counterintuitive in the definition of stickiness that emerges from these examples. Laventhal found out that the hard sell, with trying to scare students into getting tetanus shots, didn't work. And what really worked was giving them a map they didn't need, directing them to a clinic that they already knew existed. We all want to believe that the key to making an impact on someone lies with the inherent quality of the ideas we present. But in none of these cases did anyone substantially alter the content of what they were saying. Instead, they tipped the message by tinkering with things on a margin, by putting the Muppet behind the H-U-G, mixing Big Bird with the adults. The line between hostility and acceptance, in other words, between an epidemic that tips and one that does not, is sometimes a lot narrower than it seems. The creators of Sesame Street did not junk their entire show after the Philadelphia disaster. They just added Big Bird, and he made all the difference in the world. Howard Leventhal didn't redouble his efforts to terrify his students into getting a tetanus shot. He just threw in a map and a set of appointment times. The law of the few says there are exceptional people out there who are capable of starting epidemics. All you have to do is find them. Stickiness is the same way. There are simple ways to package information that, under the right circumstances, can make it irresistible. All you have to do is find it. New York City, in the 1980s, was in the grip of one of the worst crime epidemics in its history. But then, suddenly and without warning, the epidemic tipped. The murder rate peaked in 1990, then went into a steep and precipitous decline. Murders dropped by two-thirds. Felonies were cut in half. Other cities saw their crime drop in the same period, but in no place did the level of violence fall farther or faster. 
on the subways, by the end of the decade, there were 75% fewer felonies than there had been at the decade's start. The idea of crime as an epidemic, it must be said, is a little strange. We talk about epidemics of violence, or crime waves, but it's not clear that we really believe that crime follows the same rules of epidemics as, say, Hush Puppies did, or Paul Revere's Ride. Those epidemics involve relatively straightforward and simple things, a product and a message. Crime, on the other hand, isn't a single discrete thing, but a word used to describe an almost impossibly varied and complicated set of behaviors. Criminal acts have serious consequences. They require the criminal to do something that puts himself at great personal peril. To say that someone is a criminal is to say that they are evil or violent or dangerous or dishonest or unstable or any combination of any of those things, none of which are psychological states that sound like they can be transmitted casually from one person to another. Criminals do not, in other words, sound like the kind of people who could be swept up by the infectious winds of an epidemic. Yet somehow, in New York City, this is exactly what happened. In the years between the beginning and the middle of the 1990s, New York City did not get a population transplant. Nobody went out into the streets and successfully taught every would-be delinquent the distinction between right and wrong. There were just as many psychologically damaged people and criminally inclined people living in the city at the peak of the crime wave as at the trough. But for some reason, tens of thousands of those people suddenly stopped committing crimes. How did that happen? The answer lies in the third of the principles of epidemic transmission, the power of context. The law of the few looked at the kinds of people who are critical in spreading information. The section on Sesame Street looked at the question of stickiness, suggesting that in order to be capable of sparking epidemics, ideas had to be memorable and move us to action. We've looked at the people who spread ideas, and we've looked at the characteristics of successful ideas. But the subject of this section, the power of context, is no less important than the first two. Epidemics are sensitive to the conditions and circumstances of the times and places in which they occur. In Baltimore, syphilis spreads far more in the summer than in the winter. Hush puppies took off because they were being worn by kids in the cutting-edge precincts of the East Village, an environment which helped others to look at the shoes in a new light. It could even be argued that the success of Paul Revere's Midnight Ride, in some way, owed itself to the fact that it was made at midnight. At midnight, everyone is home in bed, which makes them an awful lot easier to reach than if they're off on errands or working in the fields. And if someone wakes us up to tell us something, we automatically assume the news is going to be urgent. One can only imagine how Paul Revere's afternoon ride might have compared. This much, I think, is relatively straightforward. But the lesson of the power of context is that we are more than just sensitive to changes in context. We're exquisitely sensitive to them. And the kind of contextual changes that are capable of tipping an epidemic are very different than we might ordinarily suspect. During the 1990s, violent crime declined across the United States for a number of fairly obvious reasons. The illegal trade in crack cocaine, which had spawned a great deal of violence among gangs and drug dealers, began to decline. The economy's dramatic recovery meant that many people who might have been lured into crime got legitimate jobs instead and the aging of the baby boom population meant that there were fewer people in the age range, males between 18 and 24, that is responsible for the majority of all violence. The question of why crime declined in New York City, however, is a little more complicated. In the period when the New York crime epidemic tipped down, the city's economy hadn't improved. It was still stagnant. 
In fact, the city's poorest neighborhoods had just been hit hard by the welfare cuts of the early 1990s. The waning of the crack cocaine epidemic in New York was clearly a factor. But then again, it had been in steady decline well before crime dipped. As for the aging of the population, because of the heavy immigration to New York in the 1980s, the city was getting younger in the 1990s, not older. In any case, all of these trends are long-term changes that one could expect to have gradual effects. In New York, the decline was anything but gradual. Something else clearly played a role in reversing New York's crime epidemic. The most intriguing candidate for that something else is called the broken windows theory. Broken Windows was the brainchild of the criminologists James Q. Wilson and George Kelling. Wilson and Kelling argued that crime is the inevitable result of disorder. If a window is broken and left unrepaired, people walking by will conclude that no one cares and no one is in charge. Soon, more windows will be broken, and the sense of anarchy will spread from the building to the street on which it faces, sending a signal that anything goes. In a city, Relatively minor problems like graffiti, public disorder, and aggressive panhandling, they write, are all the equivalent of broken windows, invitations to more serious crimes. This is an epidemic theory of crime. It says that crime is contagious, that it can start with a broken window and spread to an entire community. The tipping point in this epidemic, though, isn't a particular kind of person, a connector or a maven. It's something physical like graffiti. The impetus to engage in a certain kind of behavior is coming from a feature of the environment. In the mid-1980s, Kelling was hired by the New York Transit Authority as a consultant, and he urged them to put the broken windows theory into practice. They obliged, bringing in a new subway director by the name of David Gunn to oversee a multi-billion dollar rebuilding of the subway system. Many subway advocates at the time told Gunn not to worry about graffiti, to focus on the larger questions of crime and subway reliability, and it seemed like reasonable advice. But Gunn insisted. The graffiti was symbolic of the collapse of the system, he says. When you looked at the process of rebuilding the organization and morale, you had to win the battle against graffiti. We were about to put out new trains that were worth about 10 million bucks apiece, and unless we did something to protect them, we knew just what would happen. They would last one day, and then they would be vandalized. He drew up a new management structure and a precise set of goals and timetables, aimed at cleaning the system line by line, train by train. He started with the number seven train that connects Queens to Midtown Manhattan and began experimenting with new techniques to clean off the paint. On stainless steel cars, they used solvents. On the painted cars, they simply painted over the graffiti. Gunn made it a rule that there should be no retreat, that once a car was reclaimed, it should never be allowed to be vandalized again. At the end of the number one line in the Bronx, with the train stopped before turning around and going back to Manhattan, Gunn set up a cleaning station. If a car came in with graffiti, the graffiti had to be removed during the changeover, or the car was removed from service. The idea was to send an unambiguous message to the vandals themselves. Gunn's graffiti cleanup took from 1984 to 1990. At that point, the Transit Authority hired William Bratton to head the Transit Police, and the second stage of the reclamation of the subway system began. Bratton was a disciple of broken windows, so his first step as police chief was as seemingly quixotic as guns. With felonies, serious crimes, on the subway system at an all-time high, Bratton decided to crack down on fare-beating. Why? Because he believed that fare-beating was a tipping point, 
a small sign of disorder that invited much more serious crimes. An estimated 170,000 people a day were entering the system by one route or another without paying a token. Some were kids who simply jumped over the turnstiles. Others would lean backwards on the turnstiles and force their way through. The problem was that once one or two or three people began doing it, other people, who might never otherwise have considered evading the law, would join in, reasoning that if some people weren't going to pay, they shouldn't either, and the problem would snowball. At the same time, fare-beating was a difficult problem to fight. Because there was only $1.25 at stake, it didn't seem like the kind of crime to merit extraordinary measures. The transit police didn't feel like it was worth their time to stand by the turnstiles, when there were plenty of more serious crimes happening down on the platform and in the trains. Bratton quickly made his presence felt. He would roam the city on the subway at night, getting a sense of what the problems were and how best to fight them. First, he picked stations where fare-beating was the biggest problem and put as many as ten policemen in plain clothes at the turnstiles. The team would nab fare-beaters one by one, handcuff them and leave them standing in a daisy chain on the platform until they had a full catch. The idea was to signal, as publicly as possible, that the transit police were now serious about cracking down on fare-beaters. Previously, police officers had been wary of pursuing fare-beaters because the arrest the trip to the station house, the filling out of necessary forms, and the waiting for those forms to be processed took an entire day, all for a crime that usually merited no more than a slap on the wrist. Bratton retrofitted a city bus and turned it into a rolling station house with its own fax machines, phones, holding pen, and fingerprinting facilities. Soon the turnaround time on an arrest was down to an hour. Bratton also insisted that a check be run on all those arrested. Sure enough, One out of seven arrestees had an outstanding warrant for a previous crime, and one out of twenty was carrying a weapon of some sort. Suddenly, it wasn't hard to convince police officers that tackling fare-beating made sense. Under Bratton, the number of ejections from subway stations for drunkenness or improper behavior tripled within his first few months in office. Arrests for misdemeanors, for the kind of minor offenses that had gone unnoticed in the past, went up five-fold between 1990 and 1994. Bratton turned the transit police into an organization focused on the smallest infractions, on the details of life underground. After the election of Rudolph Giuliani as mayor of New York in 1994, Bratton was appointed head of the New York City Police Department, and he applied the same strategies to the city at large. He instructed his officers to crack down on quality-of-life crimes, on the squeegee men who came up to drivers at New York City intersections and demanded money for washing car windows, for example, and on all the other above-ground equivalents of turnstile jumping and graffiti. Bratton says, if you peed in the street, you were going to jail. When crime began to fall in the city, as quickly and dramatically as it had in the subways, Bratton and Giuliani pointed to the same cause— Minor, seemingly insignificant quality-of-life crimes, they said, were tipping points for violent crime. The broken windows theory and the power of context are one and the same. They are both based on the premise that an epidemic can be reversed, can be tipped, by tinkering with the smallest details of the immediate environment. They say that the criminal is actually someone acutely sensitive to his environment, who is alert to all kinds of cues, and who decides to commit crimes based on his perception of the world around him. The power of context says you don't have to solve the big problems to solve crime. You can prevent crimes just by scrubbing off graffiti and arresting fare beaters. 
that crime epidemics have tipping points, every bit as simple and straightforward as syphilis in Baltimore or a fashion trend like hush puppies. The essence of the power of context is that for certain kinds of environments, our interstates are the result of our outer circumstances. Once you understand that context matters, that specific and relatively small elements in the environment can serve as tipping points, the defeatism that for so long has characterized our approach to crime is turned upside down. Environmental tipping points are things that we can change. We can fix broken windows and clean up graffiti and change the signals that invite crime in the first place. Crime can be more than understood. It can be prevented. There is a broader dimension to this. There are a number of studies of things like juvenile delinquency and high school dropout rates that suggest that peer influence and community influence are more important than family influence in determining how children turn out. The studies show, essentially, that a child is better off in a good neighborhood and a troubled family than he or she is in a troubled neighborhood and a good family. We spend so much time celebrating the importance and power of family influence that this may seem, at first blush, like it can't be true. But in reality, it is no more than an obvious and commonsensical extension of the power of context, because it says simply that children are powerfully shaped by their external environment, that the features of our immediate social and physical world, the streets we walk down, the people we encounter, play a huge role in shaping who we are and how we act. It isn't just serious criminal behavior in the end that is sensitive to environmental cues. It is all behavior. In 1996, a sometimes actress and playwright by the name of Rebecca Wells published a book entitled Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood. Its arrival in the bookstores was not a major literary event. When Wells gave a reading soon after her book was published in Greenwich, Connecticut, there were seven people in the audience. She had a smattering of reviews here and there, mostly positive, and in the end, her book sold a very respectable 15,000 copies in hardcover. A year later, Yaya Sisterhood, as the book became known, came out in paperback. The first edition of 18,000 copies sold out in the first few months. By June of 1997, total paperback sales hit 30,000, and both Wells and her editor began to get the creeping sense that something strange and wonderful was about to happen. I'd be signing books, and there would be groups of women who would come together, six or seven women, and they would have me sign anywhere between three and ten books, she remembered later. And I was personalizing everything. They would have me sign to their grandmothers or mothers or sisters. Wells's editor, Diane Reverend, went to her marketing people and said it was time for an advertising campaign. They bought one ad opposite the contents page of the New Yorker magazine, and in the space of a month, sales doubled from thirty to 60,000. Going from one reading to the next across the country, Wells began to see changes in the composition of her audience. I started noticing mothers and daughters coming. The daughters would be in their late 30s, early 40s. The mothers were of the generation who went to high school during World War II. Then I noticed that there started to be three generations coming, 20-somethings as well. And then, to my total delight, there would be teenagers and fifth graders. Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood was not yet on the best seller lists. That wouldn't happen until much later when it would hit the charts and stay there through 48 printings and two and a half million copies. The national media attention, the articles in big women's magazines and the appearance on television shows that would turn Wells into a celebrity hadn't started yet either. But through the power of word of mouth, her book had tipped. 
The turning point for me was probably in Northern California, the winter after the paperback came out, Wells said. I walked into a situation where all of a sudden there were 700 and 800 people at my readings. Why did Yaya Sisterhood turn into an epidemic? In retrospect, the answer seems fairly straightforward. The book itself is heartwarming and beautifully written, a compelling story of friendship and mother-daughter relationships. It spoke to people. It's sticky. Then there's the fact that Wells herself is an actress. She didn't read from her novel as she traveled across the country so much as she acted it out, playing each character with such skill that she turned her readings into performances. Wells is a classic salesman. But there is a third, less obvious factor here, which has to do with the last of the principles of epidemics. The success of Yaya is a tribute to the power of context. More specifically, it is testimony to the power of one specific aspect of context, which is the critical role that groups play in social epidemics. In a way, this is an obvious observation. Anyone who has ever been to the movies knows that the size of the crowd in the theater has a big effect on how good the movie seems. Comedies are never funnier, and thrillers never more thrilling than in a packed movie house. Psychologists tell us much the same thing, that when people are asked to consider evidence or make decisions in a group, they come to very different conclusions than when they're asked the same questions by themselves. Once we're part of a group, we're all susceptible to peer pressure and social norms and any number of other kinds of influence that can play a critical role in sweeping people up in the beginnings of an epidemic. Have you ever wondered, for example, how religious movements get started? Usually we think of them as the product of highly charismatic evangelists, people like the Apostle Paul or Billy Graham or Brigham Young. But the spread of any new and contagious ideology also has a lot to do with the skillful use of group power. In the late 18th and early 19th century, for example, the Methodist movement became epidemic in England and North America, tipping from 20,000 to 90,000 followers in the U.S. in the space of five or six years in the 1780s. But Methodism's founder, John Wesley, was by no means the most charismatic preacher of his era. Nor was Wesley a great theologian, in the tradition of, say, John Calvin or Martin Luther. His genius was organizational. Wesley would travel around England and North America, delivering open-air sermons to thousands of people. But he didn't just preach. He also stayed long enough in each town to form the most enthusiastic of his converts into religious societies, which in turn he subdivided into smaller classes of a dozen or so people. Each convert was required to attend weekly meetings, to adhere to a strict code of conduct. If they failed to live up to the Methodist standards, they were expelled from the group. This was a group, in other words, that meant something. Over the course of his life, Wesley traveled ceaselessly among these groups, covering as much as 4,000 miles a year by horseback, reinforcing the tenets of Methodist belief. He was a classic connector. He was a super Paul Revere. The difference is, though, that he wasn't one person with ties to many people. He was one person with ties to many groups, which is a small but critical distinction. Wesley realized that if you wanted to bring about a fundamental change in someone's belief and behavior, a change that would persist and serve as an example to others, you needed to create a community around the converts where those new beliefs could be practiced and expressed and nurtured. This is why Yaya's sisterhood tipped as well. The first bestseller list on which Yaya appeared was the Northern California Independent Booksellers List. 
Northern California, as well said, was where 600 and 700 people first began showing up at her readings. It was where the Yaya epidemic began. Why? According to Reverend, because the San Francisco area is home to one of the country's strongest book group cultures. And from the beginning, Yaya was what publishers refer to as a book group book. The groups of seven women who Wells noticed coming to her readings were invariably all members of the same reading group. The book group movement of the past decade is, to some extent, a phenomenon of adult women. And Yaya's sisterhood was a book about the lifelong friendship of a group of adult women. It was the kind of book that people wanted to talk about. And because it was talked about in groups, it became that much stickier. It's easier to remember and appreciate something, after all, if you discuss it for two hours with your best friends. It becomes a social experience, an object of conversation, which is why it's not hard to understand how Yaya sparked a word-of-mouth epidemic. Wells says that at the end of her readings, during the question-and-answer session, women in the audience would tell her, We'd been in a book group for two years, and then we read your book and something else happened. It started to drop down to a level of sharing that was more like friendship. They told me that they had started going to the beach together, or having parties at each other's houses. Women began forming Yaya sisterhood groups of their own, in imitation of the group described in the book, and bringing Wells pictures of their group for her to sign. Wesley's Methodism spread like wildfire through England and America because Wesley was shuttling back and forth among hundreds and hundreds of groups, and each group was then taking his message and making it even stickier. The word about Yaya was spreading in the same way, from reading group to reading group, from Yaya group to Yaya group, and from one of Wells' readings to another, because for over a year she stopped everything else and toured the country nonstop. But if the lesson of Yaya and John Wesley is that small, close-knit groups have the power to magnify the epidemic potential of a message or idea, that conclusion still leaves a number of critical questions unanswered. The word group, for instance, is a term used to describe everything from a basketball team to the Teamsters Union, from two couples on a holiday to the Republican Party. If we are interested in starting an epidemic, in reaching a tipping point, what are the most effective kinds of groups? Is there any simple rule of thumb that distinguishes a group with real social authority from a group with little power at all? As it turns out, there is. It's called the Rule of 150. And it is a fascinating example of the strange and unexpected ways in which context affects the course of social epidemics. There is a concept in cognitive psychology called the channel capacity, which refers to the amount of space in our brain for certain kinds of information. Suppose, for example, that I played you a number of different musical tones at random and asked you to identify each one with a number. If I played you a really low tone, you would call it 1, and if I played you a medium tone, you would call it 2, and a high tone, you would call it 3. The purpose of the test is to find out how long you can continue to distinguish among different tones. People with perfect pitch, of course, can play this game indefinitely. You can play them dozens of tones and they'll be able to distinguish between all of them. But for the majority of us, this game is much harder. Most people can only divide tones into about six different categories before they begin to make mistakes and start lumping different tones in the same category. This is a remarkably consistent finding. If, for example, I played you five very high-pitched tones, you'd be able to tell them apart. And if I played you five very low-pitched tones, you'd also be able to tell them apart. 
You'd think then that if I combined those high and low tones and played them for you all at once, you'd be able to divide them into ten categories. But you won't be able to. Chances are you'll still be stuck at about six categories. This natural limit shows up again and again in simple tests. If I made you drink 20 glasses of iced tea, each with different amounts of sugar in them, and ask you to sort them into categories according to sweetness, you'll only be able to divide them into six or seven different categories before you begin to make mistakes. Or if I flash dots on a screen in front of you very quickly and ask you to count how many you saw, you'd get the number right up to about seven dots, and then you'd need to guess. There seems to be some limitation built into us, either by learning or by the design of our nervous systems, a limit that keeps our channel capacities in this general range, the psychologist George Miller concluded in his famous essay, The Magical Number Seven. This is the reason that telephone numbers have seven digits. Bell wanted a number to be as long as possible so they could have as large a capacity as possible, but not so long that people couldn't remember it, says Jonathan Cohen, a memory researcher at Princeton University. At eight or nine digits, the local telephone number would exceed the human channel capacity. There would be many more wrong numbers. As human beings, in other words, we can only handle so much information at once. Once we pass a certain boundary, we become overwhelmed. What I'm describing here is an intellectual capacity, our ability to process raw information. But if you think about it, we clearly have a channel capacity for feelings as well. I had a friend recently tell me that her grandmother had died. When I expressed my regrets, she thanked me, but added that her grandmother had been senile and very ill for many years, so that her family was as much relieved as distraught. Her explanation made perfect sense to me, as I think it would to most people. Death, even the death of someone as close to us as a grandmother, is not a uniformly tragic event. We don't feel as bad when a relative dies in their sleep at 95, as we do when someone we love dies in a car accident at 25. But why do we make that calculation? After all, in both cases, someone very close to us has died. I think the answer is that we all recognize that our capacity for compassion and empathy are finite, and we have to make choices about how best to parcel out our strongest feelings. Take a minute, for example, to make a list of all the people you know whose death would leave you truly devastated. Chances are you'll come up with about 12 names. That, at least, is the average answer that most people give to that question. Those names make up what psychologists call our sympathy group. Why aren't groups any larger? Partly, it's a question of time. If you look at the names on your sympathy list, they're probably the people who you devote the most attention to, either on the telephone, in person, or thinking and worrying about. If your list was twice as long, if it had 30 names on it, and as a result, you spend only half as much time with everyone on it, would you still be as close to everyone? Probably not. To be someone's best friend requires a minimal investment of time. More than that, though, it takes emotional energy. Caring about someone deeply is exhausting. At a certain point, at somewhere between 10 and 15 people, we begin to overload, just as we begin to overload when we have to distinguish between too many tones. It's a function of the way humans are constructed. As the anthropologist S.L. Washburn writes, most of human evolution took place before the advent of agriculture, when men lived in small groups on a face-to-face -face basis. As a result, human biology has evolved as an adaptive mechanism to conditions that have largely ceased to exist. Man evolved to feel strongly about few people, 
short distances, and relatively brief intervals of time, and these are still the dimensions of life that are important to him. Perhaps the most interesting natural limit, however, is what might be called our social channel capacity. The case for a social capacity has been made, most persuasively, by the British anthropologist Robin Dunbar. Dunbar begins with a simple observation. Primates have the biggest brains of all mammals. More importantly, a specific part of the brains of humans and other primates, the region known as the neocortex that deals with complex thought and reasoning, is huge by mammal standards. For years, scientists have argued back and forth about why this is the case. The answer, Dunbar says, is group size. If you look at any species of primate, at every variety of monkey and ape, the larger their cortex is, the larger the average size of the groups they live with. Dunbar's argument is that brains evolve, they get bigger, in order to handle the complexities of larger social groups. If you belong to a group of five people, he points out, you have to keep track of ten separate relationships. Your relationships with the four others in your circle and the six other two-way relationships between the others. That's what it means to know everyone in the circle. You have to understand the personal dynamic between each person, juggle different personalities, keep people happy, manage the demands on your own time and attention, and so forth. If you belong to a group of 20 people, however, there are now 190 two-way relationships to keep track of, 19 involving yourself and 171 involving the rest of the group. That's a five-fold increase in the size of the group, but a twenty-fold increase in the amount of information processing needed to know the other members of the group. Even a relatively small increase in the size of a group, in other words, creates a huge additional social and intellectual burden. Humans socialize in the largest groups of all primates because we are the only animals with brains large enough to handle the complexities of that social arrangement. Dunbar has actually developed an equation which works for most primates, in which he plugs in what he calls the neocortex ratio for particular species, the size of the neocortex relative to the size of the brain, and the equation spits out the expected maximum group size of the animal. If you plug in the neocortex ratio for Homo sapiens, you get a group estimate of 147.8, or roughly 150. Dunbar writes, the figure of 150 seems to represent the maximum number of individuals with whom we can have a genuinely social relationship, the kind of relationship that goes with knowing who they are and how they relate to us. Putting it another way, it's a number of people you would not feel embarrassed about joining uninvited for a drink if you happen to bump into them in a bar. Dunbar has combed through the anthropological literature and found that the number 150 pops up again and again. For example, he looks at 21 different hunter-gatherer societies from which we have solid historical evidence, from the Walbiri of Australia to the Tuati of New Guinea, and found that the average size of their villages was 148.4. We have seen in this program how a number of relatively minor changes in our external environment can have a dramatic effect on how we behave and who we are. Clean up graffiti, and all of a sudden people who would otherwise commit crimes suddenly don't. The rule of 150 suggests that the size of a group is another one of those subtle contextual factors that can make a big difference. If we want groups to serve as incubators for contagious messages, as they did in the case of Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood, 
we have to keep them below the 150 tipping point. Above that point, there starts to be structural impediments for the ability of the group to agree and act with one voice. Crossing the 150 line is a small change that can make a huge difference. Perhaps the best example of an organization that has successfully navigated this problem is Gore Associates, a privately held, multi-billion dollar high-tech firm based in Newark, Delaware. At Gore, there are no titles. If you ask someone who works there for their card, it will just say their name and underneath it the word associate, regardless of how much money they make or how much responsibility they have or how long they've been at the company. People don't have bosses, they have sponsors, mentors, who watch out for their interests. There are no organization charts, no budgets, no elaborate strategic plans. Salaries are determined collectively. Headquarters for the company is a low-slung, unpretentious red-brick building. The executive offices are small, plainly furnished rooms along a narrow corridor. The corners of Gore buildings tend to be conference rooms or free space, so no one can be said to have a more prestigious office than someone else. When I visited a Gore associate named Bob Henn at one of the company's plants in Delaware, I tried unsuccessfully to get him to tell me what his position was. I suspected, from the fact that he had been recommended to me, that he was one of the top executives. But his office wasn't any bigger than anyone else's. His card just called him an associate. He didn't seem to have a secretary that I could see anyway. He wasn't dressed any differently from anyone else. Gore is, in short, a very unusual company with a clear and well-articulated philosophy. It's a big, established company attempting to behave like a small entrepreneurial startup. By all accounts, that attempt has been wildly successful. Gore has a rate of employee turnover that is about a third of the industry average. They've made a profit in 35 consecutive years. They have growth rates and an innovative, high-profit product line that is the envy of the industry. Gore has managed to create a small company ethos so infectious and sticky that it has survived their growth into a billion-dollar company with thousands of employees. And how did they do that? By, among other things, adhering to the rule of 150. Wilbert Bilgore, the late founder of the company, seems to have stumbled on a principle by trial and error. We found out again and again that things get clumsy at 150, he told an interviewer some years ago, so 150 employees per plant became the company goal. In the electronics division of the company, that means that no plant was built larger than 50,000 square feet, since there was almost no way to put much more than 150 people in a building that size. People used to ask me, how do you do long-term planning, Hen said. And I'd say, that's easy. We put 150 parking spaces in the lot, and when people start parking on the grass, we know it's time to build a new plant. That new plant didn't have to be far away. There is one site in Delaware, for example, that has three plants within a stone's throw of each other. The buildings only have to be distinct enough to allow for an individual culture in each. We found that a parking lot is a big gap between buildings, one longtime associate, Bert Chase, told me. You've got to pick yourself up and walk across a lot, and that's a big effort. That's almost enough effort as it takes to get in your car and drive five miles. There's a lot of independence in just having a separate building. As Gore has grown in recent years, the company has undergone an almost constant process of division and redivision. 
It's not hard to see the connection between this kind of organizational structure and the unusual free-form management style of Gore. The kind of bond that Dunbar describes in small groups is essentially a kind of peer pressure. It's knowing people well enough that what they think of you matters. Gore doesn't need formal management structures in its small plants. It doesn't need the usual layers of middle and upper management. Because in groups that small, informal personal relationships are more effective. The pressure that comes to bear if we are not efficient at a plant, if we are not creating good earnings for the company, the peer pressure is unbelievable, Jim Buckley, a longtime associate of the firm, told me. This is what you get when you have small teams where everybody knows everybody. Peer pressure is much more powerful than a concept of a boss. People want to live up to what's expected of them. In order to be unified, then, in order to spread a specific company ideology to all of its employees, Gore had to break itself up into semi-autonomous small pieces. That is the paradox of the epidemic, that in order to create one contagious movement, you often have to create many small movements first. Rebecca Wells says that what she began to realize as the Yaya epidemic grew was that it wasn't really about her or even about her book. It wasn't one epidemic focused on one thing. It was thousands of different epidemics, all focused on the Yaya group. I began to realize, she said, that these women had built their own Yaya relationships, not so much to the book, but to each other. Airwalking is the name given to the skateboarding move where the skater takes off from a ramp, slips his board out from under his feet, and then takes one or two long, exaggerated strides in the air before landing. It's a classic stunt, a staple of traditional skateboarding, which is why when two entrepreneurs decided to start an athletic shoe manufacturer aimed at hardcore skateboarders in the mid-1980s, they called the company Airwalk. Airwalk was based outside of San Diego, and rooted in the teenage beach and skate culture of the region. In the beginning, the firm made a canvas shoe in wild colors and prints that became a kind of alternative fashion statement. They also made a technical skate shoe in suede, with a thick sole and heavily cushioned upper that was so badly made, at least at first, that it was almost as stiff as a skateboard itself. But the skaters became so devoted to the product that they would wash the shoes over and over again and then drive over them in cars to break them in. Airwalk was cool. They sponsored professional skateboarders and developed a cult following at the skate events and after a few years had built up a comfortable $13 million a year business. Companies can continue at that level indefinitely in a state of low-level equilibrium, serving a small but loyal audience. But Airwalk wanted more. They wanted to build themselves into an international brand. And so in the early 1990s, they changed course. They reorganized their business operations. They redesigned their shoes. They expanded their focus to include not just skateboarding, but also surfing, snowboarding, mountain biking, and BMX bicycle racing, sponsoring riders in all of those sports, 
and making airwalk synonymous with the active, alternative lifestyle. They embarked on an aggressive, grassroots campaign to meet the buyers for youth-oriented shoe stores. They convinced Foot Locker to try them out on an experimental basis. They worked to get alternative rock bands to wear their shoes on stage, and, perhaps most importantly, they decided to hire a small advertising agency named Lambesis to rethink their marketing campaign. Under the direction of Lambesis, Airwalk exploded. In 1993, they had been a $60 million company. In 1994, they had sales of $44 million. In 1995, they jumped to $150 million. And the year after that, they had $175 million. At their peak, Airwalk was ranked by one major marketing company as the 13th coolest brand among teenagers in the world and the number three footwear brand behind Nike and Adidas. Somehow, within the space of a year or two, Airwalk was jolted out of its quiet equilibrium on the beaches of Southern California. In the mid-1990s, Airwalk tipped. Why did Airwalk tip? The short answer is that Lambesis came up with an inspired advertising campaign. At the start, working with only a small budget, the creative director of Lambesis, Chad Farmer, came up with a series of dramatic images. Single photographs showing the Airwalk user relating to his shoes in some weird way. In one, a young man is wearing an Airwalk shoe on his head, with the laces hanging down like braids, as his laces are being cut by a barber. In another, a leather-clad girl is holding up a shiny vinyl Airwalk shoe like a mirror, and using it to apply lipstick. The ads were put on billboards and in wild postings on construction site walls and in alternative magazines. As Airwalk grew, Lambesis went into television. In one of the early Airwalk commercials, the camera pans across a bedroom floor littered with discarded clothing. It then settles under the bed as the air is filled with grunting and puffing and noise of the bed springs going up and down. Finally, the camera comes out from under the bed and we see a young, slightly dazed-looking youth holding an airwalk shoe in his hand, jumping up and down on his bed as he tries unsuccessfully to kill a spider on the ceiling. The ads were entirely visual, designed to appeal to youth all over the world. They had a specific sensibility. They all featured a truculent, slightly geeky anti-hero. And they were funny in a sophisticated way. This was great advertising, and in the years since the first Airwalk ads appeared, the look and feel of that campaign has been copied again and again by other companies trying to capture the cool sensibility. The strength of the Lambesis campaign was in more than the look of their work, though. Airwalk tipped because its advertising was founded very explicitly on the principles of epidemic transmission. Perhaps the best way to understand what Lambesis did is to go back to what sociologists call the diffusion model, which is a detailed academic way of looking how a contagious idea or product or innovation moves through a population. One of the most famous diffusion studies is Bruce Ryan and Neil Gross's analysis of the spread of hybrid seed corn in Greene County, Iowa in the 1930s. The new corn seed was introduced in Iowa in 1928, and it was superior in every respect to the seed that had been used by farmers for decades before. But it wasn't adopted all at once. Of the 259 farmers studied by Ryan and Gross, 
Only a handful had started planting the new seed by 1932 and 1933. In 1934, 16 took the plunge. In 1935, 21 followed, then 36, and the year after that a whopping 61, and then 46, 36, 14, and 3, until by 1941, all but two of the 259 farmers studied were using the new seeds. In the language of diffusion research, the handful of farmers who started trying hybrid seed at the very beginning of the 1930s were the innovators, the adventurous ones. The slightly larger group who were infected by them were the early adopters. They were the opinion leaders in the community, the respected, thoughtful people who watched and analyzed what those wild innovators were doing and then followed suit. Then came the big bulge of farmers in 1936, 1937, and 1938, the early majority and the late majority, the deliberate and the skeptical mass, who would never try anything until the most respected of farmers had tried it first. They caught the seed virus and passed it on, finally, to the laggards, the most traditional of all, who saw no urgent reason to change. If you plot that progression on a graph, it forms a perfect epidemic curve starting slowly, tipping just as the early adopters start using the seed, then rising sharply as the majority catches on before falling away at the end when the laggards come straggling in. What Lambesis did with their campaign for Airwalk was to try to take a brand that had been worn entirely by innovators and run it through this diffusion process, introducing it to early adopters and then the early majority, and finally, when the shoes exploded, the late majority. This is easier said than done, of course. It doesn't take much to see that trying to get a pair of sneakers into the mainstream in a market crowded with sneakers is an awful lot more difficult than getting farmers to try an obviously superior type of hybrid seed. In fact, the closer you look at the diffusion model, the trickier the actual process of contagion begins to seem. Innovations don't just slide effortlessly from one group to the next. There is a chasm between them. In the case of Hush Puppies, the downtown Manhattan kids who rediscovered the brand were wearing the shoes because Hush Puppies were identified with a dated, kitschy, ironic 50s image. They were wearing them precisely because no one else would wear them. What they were looking for in fashion was a revolutionary statement. They were willing to take risks in order to set themselves apart. But most of us in the early and late majority don't want to make a revolutionary statement or take risks with our fashion at all. So how on earth did hush puppies cross the chasm from one group to the next? You could say the same of Airwalk. Lambesis was given a shoe that had a very specific appeal to the Southern California skateboarding subculture. Their task was to make it hip and attractive to teenagers all over the world, even teens who had never skateboarded in their lives, who didn't think skateboarding was particularly cool, and who had no functional need for wide outsoles that could easily grip the board, and padded uppers to cushion the shocks of doing aerial stunts. That's clearly not an easy task. How did they do it? How is it that all the weird, idiosyncratic things that really cool kids do end up in the mainstream? This is where, I think, connectors, mavens, and salesmen play their most important role. In the section on the law of the few, I talked about how their special social gifts can cause epidemics to tip. 
Here, though, it is possible to be much more specific about what they do. They are the ones who make it possible for innovations to overcome this problem of the chasm. They are translators. They take ideas and information from one highly specialized world and translate them into a language the rest of us can understand. One of the key figures at the Lambesis Advertising Agency was Dee Dee Gordon, the firm's former head of market research. And she says that the same process occurs in the case of fashion trends that periodically sweep through youth culture. The innovators try something new. Then someone, the teen equivalent of a maven or a connector or a salesman, sees it and adopts it. Those kids make things more palatable for mainstream people. They see what the really wired kids are doing and they tweak it. They start doing it themselves, but they change it a bit. They make it more usable. Maybe there's a kid who rolls up his jeans and puts duct tape around the bottom because he's the one bike messenger in the school. Well, the translator likes that look, but he won't use tape. He'll buy something with Velcro. Or then there was the whole baby doll t-shirt thing. One girl starts wearing a shrunken down t-shirt. She goes to Toys R Us and buys the Barbie t-shirt. And the others say, that's so cool. But they might not get it so small and they might not get it with Barbie on it. They look at it and say, it's a little off, but there's a way I can change it and make it okay. Then it takes off. If someone wants to start an epidemic then, whether it is of shoes or behavior, they have to somehow employ connectors, mavens, and salesmen. They have to find some person or some means to translate the message of the innovators into something the rest of us can understand. Lambesis' intention was to spread the word about Airwalk. Obviously, they couldn't directly identify the equivalent of mavens and connectors and salesmen. They were a tiny ad agency trying to put together an international campaign. What they could do, though, was start an epidemic in which their own ad campaign played the role of translator, serving as an intermediary between the innovators and everyone else. The first thing Lambesis did was to develop an in-house market research program aimed at the youth market that Airwalk wanted to conquer. To run their research division, Lambesis hired Dee Dee Gordon, who had previously worked for the Converse Athletic Shoe Company. Gordon, who was then in her mid-twenties, had an uncanny ability to spot new trends. While she was a Converse, for example, she had noticed white teenage girls in Los Angeles dressing up like cholos, Mexican gangsters, with the look they called the wife-beater, a tight white tank top with the bra strap hanging out, and long shorts and tube socks and shower sandals. I told them, this is going to hit, Gordon remembers. There are just too many people wearing it. We have to make a shower sandal. So they cut the back off a Converse sneaker, put a sandal outsole on it, and Converse sold half a million pairs. Gordon would come to New York and would sit watching the sidewalks of Soho in the East Village for hours, photographing anything unusual. Gordon was a maven, a maven for the elusive, indefinable quality known as cool. At Lambesis, Gordon's task was to take those instincts and institutionalize them. She developed a network of young, savvy correspondents in New York and Los Angeles and Chicago and Dallas and Seattle and around the world in places like Tokyo and London, to be her eyes and ears. These kids were innovators, trendsetters. 
They were the kinds of people who would have been wearing hush poppies in the East Village in the early 1990s. The success of her research depended entirely on her ability to spot these innovators, but Gordon quickly became adept at it. She has a tape, for example, of two interviews she did with two teenage girls. They are both asked the same questions, about what they like and dislike, and at first it's hard to tell the difference between the two. But Gordon says that if you listen closely, it's clear that the second girl is the real thing, while the first girl is very mainstream. Girl two's tastes are more considered. She pauses before she answers, Gordon says. She doesn't say the first thing that comes to her mind. It's important to her to be different. Girl one answers vaguely, not going into nearly the same detail as her counterpart. She buys her clothes at J. Crew, listens to rap music. The innovator listens to an incredibly obscure band, the Danielson family, and names as her favorite designer Stephen Allen. Have you ever heard of Stephen Allen? The person she admires the most, Woody Allen, because he gets to do what he wants. These are kids who are outcasts in some way, Gordon says. It doesn't matter whether it's actually true. They feel that way. They always feel like they're different. If you ask kids what worries them, the trendsetter kids pick up on things like germ warfare or terrorism. They pick up on bigger picture things, whereas the mainstream kids think about being overweight or their grandparents dying or how well they're doing at school. You see more activists in trendsetters, people with more passion. I'm looking for someone who is an individual, who has definitely set herself apart from everybody else, who doesn't look like her peers. I've run into trendsetters who look completely like Joe Regular Guy. I can see Joe Regular Guy at a club listening to some totally hardcore band playing, and I say to myself, oh my God, what's that guy doing here? And that totally intrigues me, and I have to walk up to him and say, hey, you're really into this band, what's up? You know what I mean? I look at everything. If I see Joe Regular Guy sitting in a coffee shop and everyone around him has blue hair, I'm going to gravitate towards him because, hey, what's Joe Regular Guy doing in a coffee shop with people with blue hair? With that stable of innovator correspondence in place, Gordon would then go back to them two or three or four times a year, asking them what music they were listening to, what television shows they were watching, what clothes they were buying, or what their goals and aspirations were. The data was not always coherent. It required interpretation. Different ideas would pop up in different parts of the country, then sometimes move east or west or sometimes west to east. But by looking at the big picture, by comparing the data from Austin to Seattle and Seattle to Los Angeles and Los Angeles to New York, and watching it change from one month to the next, Gordon was able to develop a kind of coherent picture of the rise and movement of new trends across the country. And by comparing what her innovators were saying and doing with what mainstream kids were saying and doing three months or six months or a year later, she was able to track what sorts of ideas were able to make the jump from the cool subcultures to the majority. Gordon's findings became the template for the Airwalk campaign. If she found new ideas or trends or concepts that were catching fire among innovators around the country, the firm would plant those same concepts in the Airwalk ads they were creating. Once, for example, Gordon picked up on the fact that trendsetters were developing a sudden interest in Tibet and the Dalai Lama. 
the influential rap band The Beastie Boys were very publicly putting money into the Free Tibet campaign and were bringing monks on stage at their concerts to give testimonials. The Beastie Boys pushed that through and made it okay, Gordon remembers. So Lambesis made a very funny airwalk ad with a young airwalk-wearing monk sitting at a desk in a classroom writing a test. He's looking down at his feet because he's written cheat notes on the side of his shoes. When a billboard version of the ad was put up in San Francisco, Lambesis was forced to take it down after Tibetan monks protested that monks don't touch their feet, let alone cheat on tests. When James Bond began popping up on the trendsetter radar, Lambesis hired the director of the James Bond movies to film a series of commercials, all of which featured airwalk-clad characters making wild escapes from faceless villains. To look through the inventory of airwalk ads in that critical period, in fact, is to get a complete guide to the fads and infatuations and interests of the youth culture of the era. There are 30-second spoofs of kung fu movies, a TV spot on beat poetry, an X-Files-style commercial in which a young man driving into Roswell, New Mexico, has his airwalks confiscated by aliens. There are two explanations for why this strategy of advertising was so successful. The first is obvious. Lambesis was picking on various, very contagious trends while they were still in their infancy. By the time their new ad campaign and the shoes to go along with it were ready, that trend, with luck, would just be hitting the mainstream. Lambesis, in other words, was piggybacking on social epidemics, associating airwalk with each new trend wave that swept through youth culture. It's all about timing, Gordon says. You follow the trendsetters. You see what they're doing. It takes a year to produce those shoes. By the time the year goes, if your trend is the right trend, it's going to hit those mainstream people at the right time. Lambesis wasn't just a passive observer in this process, however. It is also the case that their ads helped to create epidemics out of the ideas they were discovering among innovators. At times, it was their campaign that was providing the critical push that allowed certain trends to tip. Gordon says, for example, that when something fails to make it out of the trendsetter community into the mainstream, it's usually because the idea never took strong enough root in the culture. There aren't enough cues, she says. You didn't see it in music and film and art and fashion. Usually if something's going to make it, you'll see that thread running through everything, through what they like on TV, what they want to listen to, even the materials they want to wear. It's everywhere. But if something doesn't make it, you'll only see it in one of those areas. Lambesis was taking certain ideas and helping them take root, planting them everywhere. Along the way, as well, they were providing that critical translation. Gordon's research showed that innovator kids were heavily into the Dalai Lama and all of the very serious issues raised by the occupation of Tibet. So what Lambesis did was take one very simple reference to that, a Tibetan monk, and put him in a funny, slightly cheeky situation. They tweaked it. Innovators were into kung fu movies. So Lambesis made a kung fu parody ad where the airwalk hero fights off martial arts villains with his skateboard. Lambesis took the kung fu motif and merged it with youth culture. They took the cultural cues from the innovators, cues that the mainstream kids may have seen but not been able to make sense of, and assimilated them into a more coherent form. 
they gave those cues a specific meaning that they did not have previously, attached to them a specific sensibility, and packaged them in the form of a pair of shoes. It can hardly be a surprise that Airwalk tipped in 1995 and 1996. Lambesis wasn't just a passive observer in this process, however. It is also the case that their ads helped to create epidemics out of the ideas they were discovering among innovators. At times, it was their campaign that was providing the critical push that allowed certain trends to tip. The Airwalk epidemic did not last. In 1997, the sales of the company began to falter. They had production problems and had difficulty filling their orders. In critical locations, Airwalk failed to supply enough product for the back-to-school season, and their once loyal distributors began to turn against them. At the same time, the company began to lose that cutting-edge sensibility that it had traded on for so long. When Airwalk started, the product was directional and inventive. The shoes were very forward, said Chad Farmer. We maintained the trendsetter focus on the marketing, but the product began to slip. The company began to listen more and more to the sales staff, and the product started to get that homogenized, mainstream look. Everybody loved the marketing. In focus groups that we do, they still talk about how they miss it. But the number one complaint is, what happened to the cool product? Lambesis' whole strategy was based on translating innovator shoes for the majority. But suddenly, Airwalk wasn't an innovator shoe anymore. We made another critical mistake, Lee Smith, the former president of Airwalk, says. We had a segmentation strategy where the small, independent core skate shops, the 300 boutiques around the country who really created us, had a certain product line that was exclusive to them. They didn't want us to be in the mall. So what we did was we segmented our product. We said to the core shops, you don't have to compete with the malls. It worked out very well. The boutiques were given the technical shoes, different designs, better materials, more expensive uppers. Smith said, We had a special signature model, the Tony Hawk for skateboarding, which was a lot beefier and more durable. It would retail for about $80. The shoes Airwalk distributed to Kinney's or Champs or Foot Locker, meanwhile, were less elaborate and would retail for about $60. The innovators always got to wear a different, more exclusive shoe than everybody else. The mainstream consumer had the satisfaction of wearing the same brand as the cool kids. But then, at the height of their success, Airwalk switched strategies. They stopped giving the specialty shops their own shoes. That's when the trendsetters started to get a disregard for the brand, says Farmer. They started to go to their boutiques where they got their cool stuff, and they realized that everyone else could get the very same shoes at JCPenney. Now, all of a sudden, Lambesis was translating mainstream products for the mainstream. The epidemic was over. Starting epidemics requires concentrating resources on a few key areas. The law of the few says that connectors, mavens, and salesmen are responsible for starting word-of-mouth epidemics, which means that if you are interested in starting a word-of-mouth epidemic, your resources ought to be solely concentrated on those three groups. No one else matters. We are also powerfully influenced by our surroundings, our immediate context, and the personalities of those around us. Taking the graffiti off the walls of New York's subways turned New Yorkers into better citizens. 
While there is difficulty and volatility in the world of the tipping point, there is a large measure of hopefulness as well. Merely by manipulating the size of a group, we can dramatically affect its receptivity to new ideas. By tinkering with the presentation of information, we can seriously improve its stickiness. Simply by finding and reaching those few special people who hold so much social power, we can shape the course of social epidemics. In the end, tipping points are a reaffirmation of the potential for change and the power of intelligent action. Look at the world around you. It may seem like an unmovable, implacable place. It is not. With the slightest push, in just the right place, it can be tipped. Afterward, Tipping Point Lessons from the Real World Not long after the tipping point came out, I happened to talk to an epidemiologist, a man who had spent the better part of his professional life battling the AIDS epidemic. He was a thoughtful fellow, and frustrated in the way that you can imagine someone would be who has had to deal on a daily basis with such a terrible disease. We were sitting in a cafe talking about my book, which he had read, and then he said something startling. I wonder if we would have been better off if we had never discovered the AIDS virus at all. I don't think he meant that literally, or that he regretted the countless lives that had been saved or prolonged by anti-HIV drugs and the AIDS test. What he meant was this, that the AIDS epidemic is fundamentally a social phenomenon. It spreads because of the beliefs and social structures and poverty and prejudices and personalities of a community, and sometimes getting caught up in the precise biological characteristics of a virus merely serves as a distraction. We might have halted the spread of AIDS far more effectively just by focusing on those beliefs and social structures and poverty and prejudices and personalities. And when he said that, a light bulb went on inside my head. That's what I was trying to say in The Tipping Point. A book I was taught long ago in English class is a living and breathing document that grows richer with each new reading. But I never quite believed that until I wrote The Tipping Point. I wrote my book without any clear expectation of who would read it or what, if anything, it would be useful for. It seemed presumptuous to think otherwise. But in the years since its publication... I have been inundated with the comments of readers. I have received thousands of emails through my website, www.gladwell.com. I have spoken at conferences and retreats and sales meetings and chatted with internet entrepreneurs and shoe designers and community activists and movie executives and countless others. And each time I have learned something new about my book and about why it seems to have touched such a chord. In New Jersey the philanthropist Sharon Karmazin bought 300 copies of The Tipping Point and sent one to every public library in the state, promising to fund any ideas they could come up with that were inspired by my book. Use the thinking in the book to create something new, Karmazin told librarians. Don't just give us something you wanted to do anyway. Within a few months, Tipping Point grants totaling close to $100,000 have been given out to 21 different libraries. In Roselle, the public library is on a side street, hidden away behind shrubbery, and so the library got a grant to put up signs around town to direct people to the library. 
Another library used its grant to teach the connectors among the group of seniors who use the library to surf the net, betting that they will draw in other patrons. Still another library bought Spanish-language books and materials, hoping to create a draw for an underserved population in their town. None of the grants was more than a few thousand dollars, nor were the ideas themselves more than modest. But that was the point. In California, Ken Futternick, a professor of education at California State University at Sacramento, says he was inspired by the tipping point to come up with an idea for attracting teachers to troubled schools. There is an interesting stalemate, Futternick told me. Good principals say, I can't go off to a hard school unless I have good teachers. And good teachers say, I won't go off to a hard school unless there is a good principal. There have been a lot of efforts, like forgivable loans, that thrash around and don't ever go anywhere. In some schools in low-income parts of Oakland, where Futternick has been focusing his efforts, he says that 40% of the teachers may lack credentials, working only on an emergency two-year basis. I asked teachers, what would it take for you to go to one of these schools in a very low-income area, lots of single parents, not a safe part of town? He went on, salary incentives? They say maybe. Lower class size? They say yeah, maybe. All the things I listed were sort of attractive, but I didn't get the sense that any one of them would be enough to get people to take the assignment. It would be easy to conclude, from all of that, that teachers are undedicated and selfish, not willing to work in those places where they are most needed. But what would happen, Futternick wondered, if he changed the context of the request? His new idea, which he hopes to put in place over the next year in Oakland, is for principals to be recruited for difficult schools and then given a year to put together a team of qualified teachers drawn from good schools for their new assignment, a team that would go into the new school together. On playing fields and battlegrounds, challenges that would be daunting and impossible if faced alone are suddenly possible when tackled in a close-knit group. The people haven't changed, but the way in which the task appears to them has. Futternick thinks the same principle ought to hold true in the classroom, that teachers would be willing to take on a daunting assignment if they felt they were surrounded by other experienced, high-quality teachers. That's a lesson from the tipping point that I never thought could have application in the inner city of Oakland. One of the things that motivated me to write The Tipping Point was the mystery of word of mouth, a phenomenon that everyone seemed to agree was important, but no one seemed to know how to define. It is on this subject that readers have talked to me the most over the last year, and on which I have thought the most as well. What is now obvious to me but was not at the time I wrote The Tipping Point, is that we are about to enter the age of word of mouth, and that, paradoxically, all of the sophistication and wizardry and limitless access to information of the new economy is going to lead us to rely more and more on very primitive kinds of social contacts. Relying on the connectors, mavens, and salesmen in our life is the way we deal with the complexity of the modern world. This is a function of many different factors and changes in our society, of which I'd like to talk about three. The rise of isolation, particularly among adolescents. The rise of immunity in communication. And the particularly critical role of the maven in the modern economy.
Understanding the Age of Isolation. At 9.20 a.m. on March 5, 2001, 15-year-old Andy Williams opened fire with a 22 caliber long barrel revolver from the bathroom of his high school in Santee, California. He fired 30 rounds over six minutes, first into the bathroom itself and then into an adjoining courtyard, killing two students and hitting 13 other people. He was a skinny, jug-eared freshman, new to town, with a silver necklace reading Mouse. And afterward, as always seems to happen in these cases, his friends and teachers said they could not believe that someone so quiet and mild-mannered could have committed such an act of violence. I wrote in The Tipping Point about adolescent epidemics, and I used as a case study the epidemic of teenage suicide that raged for many years on the islands of Micronesia. I could not find a more dramatic example of the proclivity of teenagers to get caught up in mindless and highly contagious rituals of self-destruction. The Micronesian epidemic started with a single high-profile suicide, a love triangle involving a charismatic high-born youth and a dramatic scene at a funeral, and soon other boys were committing suicide in precisely the same way, and for reasons that seemed preposterously trivial. I thought that the recent rise in teen smoking in the West was our form of this kind of epidemic. But in truth, the analogy was inexact. In Micronesia, teens were doing something entirely unique to their own culture. They were not mimicking an adult practice or reacting to something the adult world was imposing on them. They were simply following the internal rules of their culture, as if they were entirely blind to what adults said and did. Teen smoking, by contrast, is quite different. It's an adult practice that is cool among teens precisely because of its adult roots. And teens smoke, in part, in reaction to what adults preach to them about the evils of smoking. The first is an epidemic in isolation. The second is an epidemic in reaction. I thought we couldn't have the first kind of epidemic among Western teens. I was wrong. We now have the school shooting epidemic. The school massacre at Columbine High in Littleton, Colorado, happened on April 20, 1999. In the 22 months that followed, there were 19 separate incidents of school violence across the United States. Ten of them foiled, fortunately, before anyone got hurt. Each patterned almost eerily on the Columbine shootings. Seth Tricky, a seventh grader in Fort Gibson, Oklahoma, who pulled out a 9mm semi-automatic handgun and fired 15 rounds into a group of classmates in December of 1999, was so obsessed with the Columbine shootings that before the incident, he was receiving psychological counseling. A 17-year-old in Millbrae, California, was arrested after threatening to do a Columbine at his school. Police found an arsenal of 15 guns and rifles in his home. Joseph de Guzman in Cupertino, California, planned an attack on his school in January of 2001 and later told police that the Columbine gunmen were the only thing that's real. Three boys were arrested in Kansas the following month, and police found bomb-making materials, rifles, and ammunition in their homes, including three black trench coats, just like the coats worn by the Columbine gunmen. 
Two days later, in Fort Collins, Colorado, police found another cache of ammunition and guns. The boys involved had been overheard plotting to redo Columbine. In the press, this wave of shootings and would-be shootings has sometimes been portrayed as part of a larger wave of violence. But that's not true. In 1992 to 1993, there were 54 violent deaths on public school campuses around the United States. In 2000, there were 16. The Columbine wave happened in a period when violence among students was down, not up. Much attention has also been paid to the social circumstances of the children involved in those incidents. Andy Williams was a lonely and often bullied boy, the product of divorce and neglect. Time magazine summed up his world as a place where getting stoned on super-strong weed like bubblegum chronic is for some a daily deed and where ditching school to rub shoulders with the Aryan Brothers gang in the skate park is an unexceptional life choice. But to have kids growing up in disaffection and loneliness is hardly a new development. Millions of kids who grew up just as emotionally impoverished as Andy Williams don't walk into their school one morning and start shooting. The difference is Columbine. Andy Williams was infected by the example of Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, just as the suicides of Micronesia were infected by the example of that first dramatic love triangle. It is a mistake to try to make sense of these kinds of actions by blaming influences of the outside world in terms of broader trends of violence and social breakdown. These are epidemics in isolation. They follow a mysterious internal script that makes sense only in the closed world that teenagers inhabit. The best analogy to this kind of epidemic is the outbreak of food poisoning that swept through several public schools in Belgium in the summer of 1999. It started when 42 children in the Belgian town of Bornem became mysteriously ill after drinking Coca-Cola and had to be hospitalized. Two days later, eight more schoolchildren fell sick in Brugge, followed by 13 in Harlebeke the next day, and 42 in Lochristi three days after that, and on and on in a widening spiral that, in the end, sent more than 100 children to the hospital, complaining of nausea, dizziness, and headaches, and forced Coca-Cola into the largest product recall in its 113-year history. Upon investigation, an apparent culprit was found. In the Coca-Cola plant in Antwerp, contaminated carbon dioxide had been used to carbonate a batch of the soda's famous syrup. But then the case got tricky. Upon examination, the contaminants in the carbon dioxide were found to be sulfur compounds present at between 5 and 17 parts per billion. These sulfides can cause illness, however, only at levels about a thousand times greater than that. At 17 parts per billion, they simply impart a bad smell like rotten eggs, which means that Belgium should have experienced nothing more than a minor epidemic of nose wrinkling. More puzzling is the fact that in four of the five schools with a bad Coke allegedly caused illness, half the kids who got sick hadn't actually drunk any Coke that day. Whatever went on in Belgium, in other words, probably wasn't Coca-Cola poisoning. So what was it? It was a kind of mass hysteria, a phenomenon that is not at all uncommon among schoolchildren. 
Simon Wesley, a psychiatrist at King's College of Medicine in London, has been collecting reports of this kind of hysteria for about 10 years, and now has hundreds of examples dating back as far as 1787, when mill workers in Lancashire suddenly took ill after they became persuaded that they were being poisoned by tainted cotton. According to Wesley, almost all cases fit a pattern. Someone sees a neighbor fall ill and becomes convinced that he is being contaminated by some unseen evil. In the past, it was demons and spirits. Nowadays, it tends to be toxins and gases, and his fear makes him anxious. His anxiety makes him dizzy and nauseated. He begins to hyperventilate. He collapses. Other people hear the same allegation, see the victim faint, and they begin to get anxious themselves. They feel nauseated. They hyperventilate. They collapse, and before you know it, everyone in the room is hyperventilating and collapsing. These symptoms, Wesley stresses, are perfectly genuine. It's just that they are manifestations of a threat that is wholly imagined. This kind of thing is extremely common, he says, and it's almost normal. It doesn't mean that you are mentally ill or crazy. What happened in Belgium was a fairly typical example of a more standard form of contagious anxiety, possibly heightened by the recent Belgian scare over dioxin-contaminated animal feed. The students' alarm over the rotten egg odor of their cokes, for example, is straight out of the hysteria textbooks. The vast majority of these events are triggered by some abnormal but benign smell, Wesley said. Something strange— like a weird odor coming from the air conditioning. The fact that the outbreaks occurred in schools is also typical of hysteria cases. The classic ones always involve schoolchildren, Wesley continued. There's a famous British case involving hundreds of schoolgirls who collapsed during a 1980 Nottinghamshire jazz festival. They blamed it on a local farmer spraying pesticides. There have been more than 115 documented hysteria cases in schools over the past 300 years. Is it a mistake to take the hysterical outbreaks, like the Belgian Coke scare, too seriously? Not at all. It was, in part, a symptom of deeper underlying anxieties. What's more, the children who felt sick were not faking their symptoms. They were sick. It's just that it's important to realize that sometimes epidemic behavior among children does not have an identifiable and rational cause. The kids get sick because other kids got sick. The post-Columbine outbreak of school shootings is, in this sense, no different. It is happening because Columbine happened, and because ritualized, dramatic, self-destructive behavior among teenagers, whether it involves suicide, smoking, taking a gun to school, or fainting after drinking a harmless can of Coke, has extraordinary, contagious power. My sense is that the way adolescent society has evolved in recent years has increased the potential for this kind of isolation. We have given teens more money so they can construct their own social and material worlds more easily. We have given them more time to spend among themselves and less time in the company of adults. We have given them email and beepers and, most of all, cellular phones so that they can fill in all the dead spots in their day dead spots that might once have been filled with the voices of adults, with the voices of their peers. That is a world ruled by the logic of word of mouth, by the contagious messages that teens pass among themselves. 
Columbine is now the most prominent epidemic of isolation among teenagers. It will not be the last. Beware the rise of immunity. One of the things I didn't talk about much in The Tipping Point, but which I have been asked about over and over again, is the effect of the Internet, in particular email, on my ideas about word of mouth. Surely, after all, email seems to make the role of the connector obsolete, or at least changes it dramatically. Email makes it possible for almost anyone to keep up with lots and lots of people. In fact, email does make it possible to cheaply and effectively reach people, or customers, whom you might not know at all. Kevin Kelly, one of the gurus of the new economy, has written, for example, of what he calls the fax effect, which is a version of this argument. The first fax machine ever made was the result of millions of dollars of research and development and cost about $2,000 at retail. But it was worth nothing, because there was no other fax machine for it to communicate with. The second fax machine made the first fax more valuable, and the third fax made the first two more valuable, and so on. Because fax machines are linked into a network, each additional fax machine that is shipped increases the value of all the fax machines operating before it, Kelly writes. When you buy a fax machine, then, What you are really buying is access to the entire fax network, which is infinitely more valuable than the machine itself. Kelly calls this the fax effect, or the law of plentitude, and he considers it an extraordinarily radical notion. In the traditional economy, after all, value comes from scarcity. The conventional icons of wealth, diamonds, gold, are precious because they are rare. And when something scarce becomes plentiful, as oil did in the 1980s and 1990s, it loses value. But the logic of the network is exactly the opposite. Power and value now come from abundance. The more copies you make of your software, the more people you add to your network, the more powerful it becomes. This is why email is supposed to be so powerful. It's the ultimate tool for easily creating these kinds of personal networks. But is this true? Epidemics create networks as well. A virus moves from one person to another, spreading through a community, and the more people a virus infects, the more powerful the epidemic is. But this is also why epidemics so often come to a crashing halt. Once you've had a particular strain of the flu, or the measles, you develop an immunity to it. And when too many people get immunity to a particular virus, the epidemic comes to an end. I think that when we talk about social epidemics, we give far too little attention to the problem of immunity. In the late 1970s, for instance, businesses began to realize that the phone was a really cheap and efficient way of reaching potential customers. And since then, the number of telemarketing calls to target households has increased tenfold. This sounds like a very good example of what Kelly is talking about, the extraordinary economic potential of a communications network that we all belong to. Except that in certain key respects, the explosion in phone use doesn't sound like the law of plentitude at all. The fact that everyone has a phone makes the phone network very powerful, in theory. 
But the truth is that over the past 25 years or so, the effectiveness of telemarketing has dropped by about 50%. Certain low-ticket items, things that cost in the range of $25 to $30, such as magazine subscriptions, are simply no longer economical to market over the phone. Belonging to a large network may be a wonderful thing, and the larger networks are, theoretically, the more powerful they are. As a network grows in size, however, it is also the case that the time and nuisance costs borne by each member of the network grow as well. That's why people don't talk to telemarketers anymore, and why most of us have answering machines and caller ID that lets us screen calls. The phone network is so large and unwieldy that we are increasingly only interested in using it selectively. We are getting immune to the telephone. Is email any different? I remember when I first got email back in the mid-1990s. I would rush home with great anticipation and dial in on my 4800 baud modem, and I would have four messages from four very good friends. And what would I do? I would immediately compose long, elegant responses. Now, of course, I get up in the morning and go to my computer, and I have 64 messages and the anticipation I once felt has been replaced by dread. I receive unwanted spam email and forwarded stories and jokes that I have no interest in, and people I don't particularly care about email me to ask me to do things I don't want to do. So how do I respond? I compose very, very short emails, seldom more than two lines long, and I often take two or three days to get back to people, and lots of email I don't answer at all. I suspect the same thing is happening with other email users around the world. The more email we get, the shorter and more selective and more delayed our responses become. These are the symptoms of immunity. What makes email so susceptible to immunity is the very thing that initially made it seem so attractive to people like Kevin Kelly, how easy and inexpensive it was to reach people. In one recent study, for instance, psychologists found that groups who communicate electronically deal with dissenting opinions very differently than groups who meet face-to-face. People holding dissenting opinions express their arguments most frequently and persistently when they communicated online, the researchers concluded. At the same time, minorities received the highest level of positive attention and had the greatest influence on the private opinions of members in the majority and on the final group decision when they communicated face-to-face. The fact that expressing a dissenting view in person is much harder socially, in other words, gives that opinion much more credence in the group's deliberations. It's the same way in other kinds of communications. The fact that anyone can email us for free, if they have our address, means that people frequently and persistently email us. But that quickly creates immunity and simply makes us value face-to-face communications and the communications of those we already know and trust all the more. I think that the facts affect error is being repeated by marketers and communicators over and over again. Advertising agencies often decide which magazines and television shows they want to place their ads in on the basis of cost. They buy whatever time is the cheapest, as a means of reaching the widest possible audience. But what about immunity? 
the agency's logic has resulted in so many companies buying ads on television that it now runs more hours of commercial time than ever before. Therefore, it's hard to believe that people are really watching commercials as closely as they did before. The same is true for a magazine with hundreds of advertisements or a roadside with billboards every hundred feet. When people are overwhelmed with information and develop immunity to traditional forms of communication, they turn instead for advice and information to the people in their lives whom they respect, admire, and trust. The cure for immunity is finding mavens, connectors, and salesmen. Finding the mavens. Whenever I look at an unopened bar of ivory bath soap, I flip it over and burst out laughing. In the midst of all the product information, there's a line that says, Questions? Comments? Call 1-800-395-9960. Who on earth could ever have a question about ivory soap? In fact, who on earth would ever have a question about ivory soap so important that they felt compelled to call the company right away? The answer, of course, is that while most of us would never dial that number, a very small percentage of profoundly weird people may well feel compelled from time to time to call in with a question. These are people who feel passionate about soap. They are the soap mavens. And if you're in the soap business, you'd better treat those soap mavens well, because they are the ones whom all their friends turn to for advice about soap. The Ivory Soap 800 number is what I call a maven trap, a way of efficiently figuring out who the mavens are in a particular world. And how to set maven traps is one of the central problems facing the modern marketplace. For the better part of a century, we defined influence in this country in the form of status. The most important influence in making up our minds, we were told, was the people who made the most money and who had the most education, and who lived in the choicest neighborhoods. The virtue of this notion was that these kinds of people were easy to find. In fact, an entire industry in the marketing world was created around the convenient delivery of long lists of people who had graduate degrees, made lots of money, and lived in nice neighborhoods. But connectors, mavens, and salesmen are a little different. They are distinguished not by worldly status and achievement, but by the particular standing they have among their friends. People look up to them not out of envy, but out of love, which is why these kinds of personalities have the power to break through the rising tide of isolation and immunity. But love is a very difficult thing to track. How on earth do you find these kinds of people? This is a question that I've been asked again and again over the last year. And there is no easy answer. Connectors, I think, are the sorts of people who don't need to be found. They make it their business to find you. But mavens are a little harder, which is why it is so important, I think, to come up with strategies for finding mavens. Maven traps. Consider the experience of Lexus. In 1990, just after Lexus first introduced its line of luxury cars in the United States, the company realized that it had two minor problems with its LS400 line that required a recall. The situation was, by any measure, an awkward one. Lexus had decided 
from the beginning to build its reputation around quality workmanship and reliability. And now, within little more than a year of the brand's launch, the company was being forced to admit to problems with its flagship. So Lexus decided to make a special effort. Most recalls are handled by making an announcement to the press and mailing a notification letter to owners. Lexus, instead, called each owner individually on the telephone the day the recall was announced. When the owners picked up their cars at the dealership after the work was completed, each car had been washed and the tank filled with gas. If an owner lived more than 100 miles from a dealership, the dealership sent a mechanic to his or her home. In one instance, a technician flew from Los Angeles to Anchorage to make the necessary repairs. Was it necessary to go to such lengths? You could argue that Lexus overreacted. The problems with the car were relatively minor, and the number of cars involved in the recall, so soon after Lexus had entered the marketplace, was small. Lexus would seem to have had many opportunities to correct the damage. The key fact, though, was not the number of people affected by the recall, but the kind of people affected by the recall. Who, after all, are the people willing to take a chance and buy a brand new luxury model? Car mavens. There may have been only a few thousand Lexus owners at that point, but they were car experts, people who take cars seriously, people who talk about cars, people whose friends ask them for advice about cars. Lexus realized that it had a captive audience of mavens, and that if they went the extra mile, they could kickstart a word-of-mouth epidemic about the quality of their customer service. And that's just what happened. The company emerged from what could have been a disaster with a reputation for customer service that continues to this day. One automotive publication later called it the perfect recall. This is the perfect maven trap. Using the recognition at sometimes a specific time or place, or situation, happens to bring together a perfect Maven audience. Here's another example, one that a reader of The Tipping Point, Bill Hartigan, told me about in an email. Hartigan was working for IT&T Financial Services in the early 1970s, right at the moment when the entire industry was first being allowed to market the then-unknown IRA, Individual Retirement Account. It was a market IT&T ended up dominating. Why? Because they were the first to find a group of mavens. As Hardikin writes, The concept of giving your money to an institution until you were at least 59 and a half years old then seems strange and scary. But one interesting thing about those IRAs, even until the mid-70s, tax breaks were only for the wealthy. This was the exception. Knowing that was our key to success. Target the wealthy? Nope. There are never many of them, they are too hard to see, and the benefits of IRAs probably would be of muted appeal. One potential target group stood out like a sore thumb, though. Teachers. At the time, and to this day, unfortunately, this vital group of professionals was overworked and severely underpaid. No one ever sought the advice of a teacher when the topic was tax breaks and investing. But IRAs allowed teachers many similar benefits that heretofore had only been for the wealthy. 
it benefited them today and tomorrow. As the great sports writer Red Smith once wrote, fighters fight, and teachers, they teach. They quickly caught on to the benefits of what IRAs had to offer them. Just as quickly, human nature took over. For the first time ever, they were able to talk to Johnny's parents about how they handled their money. Talk about grooming an entire market. Still the most brilliant marketing strategy that I have ever been involved with. Is there a way of finding the mavens in every market? I don't know, although I am quite sure that there are readers who will use the tipping point as the inspiration to come up with a way. In a world dominated by isolation and immunity, understanding these principles of word of mouth is more important than ever. This has been a Time Warner Audiobooks production of The Tipping Point, How Little Things Can Make a Big Difference, written by Malcolm Gladwell and read by the author. Produced and directed by Maya Thomas. Text abridged by Kim Grunenfelder and edited by William Whittington. Production coordinated by Dennis Kao. Tape edited, mixed, and mastered by Rick Dasher, North Hollywood Sound. The Tipping Point, How Little Things Can Make a Big Difference, is also available in hardcover from Little Brown & Company.